The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. We're up. What's happening? Hi, Joe. How you doing? Good to see you again. Ben, nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you as well, Joe. I've enjoyed your videos, and Thank I've you. enjoyed your videos, of course. Uh, Jimmy, I watched your your whole series on Atlanta all day today. I've been watching for hours. I've been watching impact videos, videos about... The, the Atlanta structure, and so let's just get into it. Let's do it. So the Rishot structure, I was on your show a little over a year ago and sh shared some details about it. To people who aren't aware, there's a location in the Western Sahara Desert of Mauritania called the Rishot structure. It's also commonly referred to as the Eye of the Sahara. It is a site that most people have never seen or heard of before, which is truly peculiar because it's so spectacular. It's a site that uh, astronauts typically use to reference from space. It is a geological feature that is said to be volcanic in nature. And what's so spectacular about this is that it just so happens to match more than a dozen striking similarities to what Plato had described as the lost ancient capital city of Atlantis. I almost feel like we're not going to do your video justice by just talking about it, because the video is so good, and you go into so many details. By the end of it, my jaw was dropped. I was like, holy shit. Like, from what you had the last time you were on the, the podcast to what you put out now, it's even more compelling. Like, way more compelling. I appreciate you saying that. And I guess to anyone that wants to check it out, I have a YouTube channel called Bright Insight. It's right at the top of the page, and it says, Lost Ancient Roman Map has Atlantis and Sahara Africa. And that's kind of where it goes from there is that there is a, actually, let me just mention real quick, like you're a very inquisitive individual. You have many interesting people that come and chat with you. And when I had asked you last time, you said that until you had saw my video, you'd never seen or heard of the never Rishot structure. Never heard of it, yeah. Anytime I meet somebody new or if I'm at some party and be like, oh, what do you do? And we start chatting about YouTube. The first thing I do now is I show them a picture of the Rishot. And I've never, not once, ever come across one single person that has seen or heard of it before, other than people who are familiar with what I've shared. But there's so many things, like the, 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 where the water flows to the south, where there's clear evidence of water erosion that took place after the volcano. There's so much that points to that possibly being Atlantis. It's spectacular. So just to run down real quick, Plato had described Atlantis as being the capital. Let me just mention that because it was an empire said to be made up of 10 kingdoms. And what I'm focusing on is the lost capital city, which was said to be made up of concentric circles, three of water, two of land, which matches the Rishot structure. It also was said to have an opening to the sea at the south. And if you look at it from satellite imagery, you can clearly see that water had ran through it. Let's take a look at that. Put, tell Jamie what image to pull up so we and, can... Um, and furthermore, it was said to have mountains to the north, and you just so happen to have mountains called the Atlas Mountain Chain, which Atlas was said to be the very first king of Atlantis. And what's interesting is that the very first known king of Mauritania, which is where the Rishat structure is located, is also their very first known king was also named Atlas. And though I'm not saying that that's the same individual, but what we do today is we pass down names, right? Like people are like, oh, my dad's name's John, and so is so is my son. And so it's, it's another striking similarity, but it goes further than that. Like there's geological similarities, such as the fact that Atlantis was said to be made up of red, black, and white color stone, which is another similarity you see at the Rishot structure. Um, it was said to have an abundance of gold and that the outer walls were lined with it. And it turns out 
that Mauritania is loaded with gold. And not only that, the richest person ever known to exist in all of mankind is Mansa Musa of the Mali Empire, which consisted partly of modern-day Mauritania. And he was so rich from gold that he would be richer than Elon Musk and like Bezos combined almost. Like many uh, unfathomable amount of billions of, of dollars. So that's another similarity. What year was this? Oh, this is... Uh, 1300s or 1400s? There he is. Yeah, there we are. 1312, 1337. What a great name, too. Mansa yeah. Musa. <laughs> um, but the similarities don't end there. There was said to be an abundance of elephants, which is one reason why to suggest that Atlantis would have been in Africa is because, well, besides the fact that elephants are known to be in, throughout Africa, they used to be in Mauritania. They're unfortunately pretty much extinct there today. Um, but another little detail that most people aren't aware of because they think of Atlantis like, oh, it must be at the bottom of the ocean. Well, that's not exactly how Plato worded it. He did describe that the aftermath of Atlantis followed a catastrophic event involving water, is that, is that what was left of Atlantis was reeds of grass and a shoal of mud that prevented ships from navigating to and from. And what people don't realize is that Sahara Africa, up until about 4,500 to 5,000 years ago, was totally green. It was tropical. It had the largest network or one of the largest networks of rivers ever known to exist. It had the largest freshwater lake ever known to exist, which is Mega Lake Chad, which just to put this into perspective, it is if you take all the North American Great Lakes combined, that's 94,000 square miles of surface area, whereas Mega Lake Chad was 139,000. Whoa. Massive. Um, the Additionally, uh, Atlantis, the capital, was said to have a river that went just north of it or next to it. And the Taman Rasat River went right through the Rishat structure or just north of it, went all the way to the Atlas Mountains that I described, which is in modern-day Morocco. Um, and the evidence is that it existed at that same period of time when Atlantis was said to be around 11,600 years ago prior to its destruction up until about 5,000 years ago. So going back to my point, like a lot of people see the Sahara Desert and they don't realize that this place was unbelievably different than it is today. And one of the things that's so important is that I know some people listening will, you know, they hear Atlantis. They think, oh, it didn't exist. Right. Whether it existed or not, the the evidence that we're going to chat about today to show you that there is conclusive evidence, I would say, that catastrophic water erosion, that the ocean had blasted through the Sahara tens of millions of years more recently than previously known. According to the science... 56 to 66 million years ago was the time of the Trans-Saharan Seaway, which was the last time the ocean blasted through it. However, there are a few lines of evidence that say otherwise. Besides the fact that anyone that looks at the Sahara Desert on through you know the Google Earth app, you can see fluvial striations, which is signature traits of water erosion. This is com uh, confirmed by other experts that look into these things. Uh, as far like, I like to mention Randall Carlson. Mm -hmm. um, he's someone that's analyzed the area and has said, yes, this is catastrophic water erosion. Um, but so one of the signature lines of evidence that suggests that the ocean blasted through it far more recently was the largest volcano in, in Sahara Africa is in Chad. Um, it's Mount Kusi, and um, there is a lava flow that goes through it that is dated at 12,000 or so years ago. The volcano itself is supposed to be somewhere between 1.2 and 2.3 million years ago. But if you look at Mount Kusi to the south, you can see, and I don't know, Jamie, if you're able to bring up one of the photos of, of that mountain chain, but you can see that the water erosion cuts off that lava flow directly to the south. Yeah, keep going over. 
a little bit right there. Okay, so go over a couple. That is the mountain, and you can see those striations, which are signature traits of water erosion. All those white blemishes are salt, and I should point out real quick that it is a confirmed fact that much of the Sahara it has surface-level salt. And you see those white blemishes on that mountain? That is not clouds. That is not snow. Those are salt deposits. And surface-level salt that would have been from the ocean? That is what I that is what I suggest because in the middle of that caldera, you have huge patches of salt. And is it reasonable to suggest that that salt existed before that the creation of that volcano? Because it seems to me that all that molten that salt would burn up. And, right. the, and, and not only that, there is scientific studies that show that there are gastropods, which are sea life, that existed inside that caldera that used to be a thousand feet deep and dried up just a few thousand years ago. So the fact that this is an 11,000 foot volcano that has salt on top of it, I would say is corresponding evidence that the ocean had once went through it. And if you go over a couple more images, Jamie, you will see far better uh, images that show you that Okay, so notice how it cuts off. You see yeah. to the black right here? That, that is a lava flow that's dated around 12,000 or so years ago. And regardless of whether the volcano or that water erosion happened 12,000 years ago or 2 million years ago, that in itself is evidence that the ocean blasted through the Sahara Desert literally 50 to 60 million years more recently than previously known. And the implications of this, as far as climate science, as far as uh, the topic of geology and cataclysms, cannot be overstated. I mean, does it not look like that, that water, or excuse me, that lava flow was cut off by whatever type of erosion that is? Does it, I mean, that's... Yeah, completely. Yeah, it's, it's such a clean line. And it, it, it aligns with all the water erosion marks that are to the left of it. Can you make that smaller, Jamie? Can you make it, stretch it out? Yeah. And... So Oh, sorry, go ahead. Nothing. It's just like you, you could really clearly see that it looks like a line, like a water line pass through what was uh, marked by the volcanic eruption. And this is one thing I say. I'm like, it's, it's visible to anyone that has eyes to see, but it turns out that the Sahara Desert is one of the least studied places on Earth, mostly because it's so inhospitable. It's an average of 125 degrees Fahrenheit much of the year. It is so unbelievably big that just to get out there, I mean, you need reliable aircraft or vehicles. There is most of the countries out there are, I regret to say, third world in that you just don't have supplies. It's not feasible to just travel out there with a whole team at, at, on a whim. So most, mm. most of it is essentially undocumented, and it's not a site – the Sahara as a whole isn't a site that gets much attention, unfortunately. Ben, we got to bring you in, otherwise it's going to talk forever. <laughs> yeah. No, I was, I was going to say something that, that you mentioned about the origin of, uh, I guess, the Plato's description. You said it was mud and, uh, and grasses was like the yes. aftermath. It's, it's interesting. It's the topic I've been exploring recently is that that does match some of the translations of origin stories from the ancient Egyptians. So it's, it's, mm. it's like that the, the Temple of Horus at Edfu, it's this amazing structure, but it's, it's literally covered head to toe in hieroglyphs and descriptions and all these types of things. But one of the stories in the translations they do talk about is this, what they would call the, uh, the, the original point or the, the primordial mound, the primordial island. They describe it as being an island that was surrounded by water that was, was sinking and essentially this, these reeds that were growing on it that created a falcon's perch. And then the god, it was either Horus or Horun, one of the falcon gods, uh, alights on this perch and then gains divinity. But as part of that story, I mean, they, 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 and then he goes and forms Kemet, the, uh, essentially the, the motherland Egypt. And it's, it's this tale of, of them, I guess, their civilization moving and, and migrating to this new land. But they, they do talk about a whole stack of 
unknown gods and a whole culture that existed before that. That's it's it's a it's an interesting correlation. It's something that Graham Hancock speculated about in his work uh, with the Temple of Horus at Edfu. You know, they they also have you know catastrophic flood myths and things like this. But it it may be that whatever prior civilization and it, uh, it, that's might have been where the dynastic Egyptians actually got their origins from because it seems clear that they've inherited some things from the past. That's a story they themselves tell. Yeah, I wasn't aware that the story of Atlantis had come from Egypt. That's one well, of the most bizarre parts about it. I didn't know this until just a few years ago either. It's like, oh, wait a second. Plato didn't just... Plato, his his distant relative Solon had traveled there in search of knowledge yeah. because Egypt was the place to go for it. And Yeah, it was, it was the priests of the Delta that told Solon. And he said, he, they said that, yeah, so 6,000 years uh, or 9,000 years, sorry, prior to the time of Solon was when the, the sinking of this city happened. And that, mm. that works out to be 9,600 BC, so 11,600 years ago, which is bang on exactly where now the geological evidence points to basically the end of the Younger Dryas cataclysms. Like something, we know something happened at the start at like 12,800, 900 years, and then 11,600 years ago was that end of the Younger Dryas that brought us up out of the cold spell and into the, the Holocene. Isn't it crazy that that's a full thousand years and we think about it in like the same time period? Like, yeah, I mean, around that time. <laughs> I know. We're, yeah, we're, just we're playing literally around with it. Yeah. 11,600 to 12,800. We're literally talking about a thousand, thousand. fucking years. It yeah. is. It's so much time. It's so much time that actually if you go from 12,008, you know, so basically let's say 1,200 years. The English language, Old English, is only like 1,400 years, and right. Modern English is only like four or 500 years. So this is such a wide, a, a long period of time that our, we weren't even speaking the same language that in that same, you know, 1,000 years ago. It's a, yeah. When you think of it like that, it's like it's, it's a different world. It's nuts. It's, and if you think about the people that lived 1,000 years ago and how they lived, you know, all of this that I've learned from Graham Hancock and from Randall Carlson and from you guys— all of it is so astonishing and it all fits into place. It all makes sense. Like, why are we so fucked up? Like, why is civilization so wacky? Why do we have these, these, these weird structures that no one can really explain? And when you think about the fact that there's so much evidence that we were hit by comets, that we were hit by large objects. Like, I didn't know about that enormous crater that's in um, Antarctica. Oh, yes. Well, tell I, I don't know all the details on how old that one's supposed to be, but it's one of the largest, isn't it? Yeah, there's a big one in, in, uh, in Antarctica. I don't know that much about it, but another one that you... Have you heard of Burkle Crater? That's another one? Yes. Yeah, Burkle Crater, like the... 20, 20 mile hole in the bottom of the Indian Ocean. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. That's, and when is that supposed to be five, found? So five. That was five thousand years ago. They dated that. It's something plopped down in the the Indian Ocean, and it washed up these mega tsunamis on the coast of Madagascar and Western Australia that we can see in satellite images today. These got these like five six hundred foot high chevrons from where the water went miles inland, and they 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 found organic material from the seabed in these chevrons, and then they date that with carbon fourteen dating, and they put it right at uh, 5,000 years ago, so, so 2,500 around that time BC, which is actually a really interesting date when you consider some of the, I guess, the publications that we rely on in our in our modern civilization today. The Bible, the Old Testament, wasn't written long after that. And if you think about where the Indian Ocean is, that could have been the source of the biblical flood. Like that, mm. that would have washed up north into the Persian Gulf, flooded the hell out of that whole region. It's just crazy that it's happened so many times. 
That's like, what they we, say. We like to think of history as being this linear thing. We started out as cave people, that's and then right. we branched out from Africa all across the world, and, that's and, the end kept, of it. and kept learning. And here we are today with cell phones. But no, yeah. no, it's we've been we've been rocked like multiple many times, times, many many times, and there's real solid evidence. The Antarctica one. How old do they think that is? I don't recall on that. Mm-hmm. I have to double check that. I'd have to do a Google, Jamie. <laughs> and yeah. So researchers have discovered a crater 1.5 kilometers beneath the Antarctica ice crust, 482 kilometers in diameter. 482 kilometers in diameter. Holy shit. What does that tell Probably dates back to a meteorite impact 250 million years ago. Wow. Okay, so that's an old one. That's like an order of magnitude bigger than anything related even with the younger draw. I mean, that's a... Bigger than the dinosaur one, right? Yeah, that's like a 99 point whatever percent... Extinction event. So it's just it just keeps happening. The Earth just over millions and millions of years and thousands of years that humans have been around. The Earth just keeps getting whacked. The evidence is so (laughs) overwhelming. And say going back to the younger driest period of time, there's evidence when you say get whacked. More than thirty percent of all landmass at that time was charred, burned. They they claim that it's more fires than existed in the time of the dinosaurs. Now I don't know if that's an article I read on Science Alert. I don't know if they can truly prove that but if nothing else 30 percent of all landmass existing today was burned and scorched to death at that period of time that like helps people to wrap their heads around like this the world was on fire yeah, yeah that's that's the younger driest mat they yeah it's it's they they estimate as part of the the burning and because there was floods and fire and this correlates to a lot of origin myths from cultures all around the world but yeah 10 percent of the biomass i think is the nine to ten percent of the which is an inconceivable number of that's how much of the world was was burnt, and that's now embedded 10% in this black percent ma- 10% of the percent. biomass. Yeah, it's so crazy that there's a, a like literally a dark line. Yeah, in the ground. In the ground <laughs> that shows where everything was on fire for a long mm, fucking fine. time. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's crazy. We, a, we we barely survived it. There's actually we now have a correlation of not only population reduction but a a, a significant um, drop in like genetic diversity as a result, like it's tied to the younger dryas. There's been a, a few good studies recently done at that. So we were one of the megafauna that the 50% of megafauna at the time that actually survived and, and got through that event. How do they think people survived? Is there any speculation? It, it, and where did we survive? Like where was the good spot? I think caves. I, I think a lot of it would have been underground. And I think that's, you might actually, they may have even known. Like I think there's some evidence to suggest that some of these, like Derinkuyu in, Tur- in, uh, in Turkey, the, in the Cappadocia region, region, could host tens of thousands of people. There's massive labyrinths all over Egypt at beneath Saqqara. There's miles and miles of tunnels and catacombs. I've been an- down into a bunch of them. I, and, and even when you look at sites like Gobekli Tepe, there's been some in- interpretations of the artwork on that site that seems to indicate a cosmic calendar. Like they're almost marking that date. We know that the ancients were watching the sky. Like they were concerned about it. And comet mythology is a fantastic topic for Randall. I talked with him about this quite a bit. The comet, it wasn't seen as a pretty thing in the sky. Like it was the, the harbinger of doom. Like comets and we, uh, all those types of things were just seen as really bad things that they were preparing for. But I, I think we survived partly because of diversity and being spread out all around the world. There were parts of the world that weren't as badly touched, like Australia, for example, that whole continent wasn't as badly affected as, say, the Northern Hemisphere was from the Younger Dryas, mm. uh, but also caves, 100% caves and, and sheltered caves, uh, those big cities that, that they could take tens of thousands of people underground. Mm. Yeah. Something wild that it's popped back up in my head, speaking of flooding and this 11,000-year time frame, 
going back to the Brishot structure, there's a study that I came across that ties into the video that we were just mentioning that off the west coast of Sahara Africa, right in front of the Brishot structure, there is an underwater seafloor slide dated at approximately 11,000 years ago. And keyword approximately, that the very symbol is in there. So they're not entirely sure of the date, but in that time frame. And this sediment looks like in, in the shape that it was blasted from a, a flood of water coming out of the Sahara, just based on the nature of the shape of it, that's more than 200 miles wide and maybe 130, 140, 150 miles from north to south. And it's layered sentiment that is two, 2,000 uh, meters, excuse me, more than a mile deep, and it's layered, this mm -hmm. right here. So one, it's corresponding evidence that a uh, massive force of water may have blown out of the Sahara. And the one reason why this is so significant is besides the fact that it indicates a possible flood of 11,000 years ago, but if there was any remnants of Atlantis, if there was, if the Rishot structure was the location, this is where you would want to go look, looking. I mean, it's again, mm. layered sentiment, more sediment, sediment excuse me, yeah. thank you, yeah, sentiment, uh, <laughs> uh, more than a mile deep. Wow. Yeah. That's just to put this into perspective from going from east to west, based on this 200 mile, the, the widest point of the Florida Peninsula is 150 miles. Like this is more than 50 miles wider than the entire state of Florida panhandle. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's the same distance from New York City to, um, uh, where do I have that in? Uh, D.C., excuse me. Yeah. Mm. Um, so like this is literally evidence of a catastrophic flood. That's more than just a seafloor slide. Something bulldozed. And, and when you look at yeah. these fluvial erosions, to anyone that's looking at this right now, signature uh, traits of catastrophic water erosion. And it looks exactly like they teach in school when it comes to water striations, whether it's from glaciers or from water. These are signature traits of water. This is not wind. Yeah. And the fact that all these areas of white blemishes, say in the wrist shot, are confirmed salt. There's numerous studies. I mean, for example, there is a treatise uh, from 1851 from England and Mauritania that lists a few things. It talks about, one, that abundance of gold. It lists that, but, well, actually, let me back up. Salt, they used to export gold out of Mauritania to Europe, and that's one of the locations. And uh, also, gold, it said that prior to the land or the gold rush of North America back in the 1800s, Europe got most of their gold supply from Mauritania as well. Wow. Which is an interesting point because if that was a site of Atlantis, which was said to be so rich in gold, what an interesting mm -hmm. similarity. Go back to that image again, please, Jamie. View that what's really fascinating too is the the description of Atlantis of having that opening to the south and then you see this clear pathway to the south. To the south. Yep. Everything lines up. The shape of Atlantis, like the the concentric circles, the amount of them, earth to water, the way it, the the representation of it as described. Right. The mountains to the north, like everything lines up. And not only that, all that salt is all, if people play around with this on Google Earth, you can check the elevation by using your mouse. All the areas with all the most significant amounts of salt happen to be at the lowest elevations, which I think is corresponding evidence that seawater had settled and later evaporated there. And as you see here, you can see mm. it, it rips through the entire Sahara. And if you, if you look at their study that's showing the Trans-Saharan Seaway of 56 to 66 million years ago, it shows that the water blasted to the south, but it does not show it going west over the Rishot. So I feel like there was some other event, something separate that happened. And 
I mean, yeah, these photos are spectacular. The photos are spectacular, but could you zoom out again, please, Jamie? The thing that's crazy is how clearly it looks like water came over that and washed back. Oh, it look, did. look at the left side of that image. It looks so clearly like massive amounts of water came over there and then pulled back. Like, look at the way it's eroded. Do you want something that's going to blow your mind? So this area right here. Scroll in, Jamie, and you'll see. We discussed this last time as being water ripples. So remember when uh, Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson were on your show a few mm. years ago, and yeah, they were showing that. you the the area of the Missoula uh, mm -hmm. floodplains in Montana and Washington. West Bar, yeah. yeah. God, look, it's so clear. And so what's interesting is that, so I measured these, and I, they might be some of the slides in there. I'm not totally sure, but yeah, those are, that's white salt. But these, this is a wild these pictures got go great. <laughs> well, that's like amazing. Taking yeah. some recent it's satellite amazing. photos. God, it's yeah, amazing. You can keep wow. digging in like that. So these ripples, when you pan out, so the ones that, that Randall had showed you, um, those were something like uh, closer to 300 feet apart and 50 feet high. Mm -hmm. I've measured these more than 3,000 feet to 6,600 feet in between each ripple and more than 200 feet high. Wow. wow. So if, if these are indeed caused from like ripples like you see on the beach from catastrophic flooding, um, this, is at, this is a force of water that is truly, it goes beyond the mind's comprehension. It's something that I don't think we could even understand but if you pan out you have people have to understand that this is a couple hundred miles from one side to the other yeah and so this is this is this would have been a force of flood water that i think goes beyond anything we could have thought possible i think this is why scientists have somehow missed it because yeah. i don't know how to say this but no one else seems to be talking about this now the structure that you think is atlantis how tall are those concentric rings so it is the entire structure from one side to the other is nearly 30 miles but the interior structure of the, th the concentric circles is 16 miles and this is one argument that's made against it is that this the size dimensions that plato had gave uh are significantly small. smaller and so, but I, I would make two arguments on this. One, this is a 12,000-year-old story, and I would, that, I would argue that it is impossible for over 12,000 years to carry down uh, precise translations because of— How you know, off is it from the translations? Oh, significantly. The, the entire site would be a small circle inside the middle of this yeah. circle. But here's mm. the reason why I think those mention, dimensions are, are wrong, is because Atlantis was said to be busy all day and all night— and I would compare that to any modern city today, which you could argue would be a population within the millions. So if it was as small as Plato described, it wouldn't be feasible to suggest that millions of people would have lived there. And I'll make one other little point, which is that because many people posit that it could be in the Atlantic Ocean, like at the Azores. And I think that's a phenomenal argument for that. Um, but one, if I was to defend the Rishot, or I would say that if this was a place that was spoken from languages of all over and was said to be a trading hub, I don't think that it would be as feasible to suggest that Atlantis would be in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean as opposed to West Africa, which was green at the time. This whole area was connected by a network of rivers, which I should have some slides Close in there. Close to the coast. You right? can get boats in there. You wouldn't have to venture out in the middle of the ocean, yeah. as you described in your video. Rivers. You make a very, very compelling argument. Yeah. Um, my question, though, how tall are those circles? Like, the, How high do those things go? I want to say 60 feet from... Or 60, actually, no, no, excuse me. I want to say 100 feet at some of the highest points down to the salt. I'd have to remeasure, but if, if Jamie, if you go over Did it, you go there pressure, personally? No. So I have 
In fact, let me give them a shout out. Josh Sigurdsson yeah. and David Sk- uh, Stig Hansen went there individually. These are some intrepid fellows. It is a gutsy <laughs> trip. Josh almost died because you have to drive through a minefield to go there. He <gasps> saw actual skeletons. He had like an AK pointed at his head. Yeah. Like the, it's it's really? a wild ass place. Yeah, yeah. He's, you have to drive through a fucking minefield yeah. to get there? Yeah, he has and, balls of steel. That yeah, he's an <laughs> intrepid fellow. Same yeah. with David. And to be honest, like I don't, I'm t- look, I don't. I'd rather fly over it. If someone wants to fly me over it, I'd love to get <laughs> some great pictures. Yeah. What if they shoot at the helicopter? <laughs> and that's Fuck another thing. That. I don't want to trash Mortania because I've heard from people who have gone there, they met the nicest people they've ever met in their lives. As long as they're not shooting you, they're nice. Yeah. But it's worth mentioning that, that I know. <laughs> well, there's all the gold there, too. I would imagine they would want to protect that gold. Which man. is why they won't let you do ground radar here. So Josh brought out mm. ground radar equipment, and they threatened imprisonment. And apparently, oh, this is one of those yeah. countries where they will cut off your fingers if you get caught stealing, potentially. And this is a country that it wasn't until the 80s uh, and uh, as well as additional law uh, legislature in like 2007 where to abolish slavery. But apparently it's not being enforced. Oh, so there are geez. still slaves in Mauritania. So I'm like when I hear details like this, it makes me just not feel like driving out there. Do they know <laughs> that people think that's Atlantis or they're aware of this? It's growing. It's, it's apparently growing. It's, yeah, people are now talking about it. People are venturing out there. You know, um, it- they yeah. have this on their on their currency, the the picture of the wrist shot. Where you really? say that's the most famous thing. Yeah, well, just the, the whole term of Atlantis too. We tend to we do tend to focus on it being like a single city, a single thing. It was, and and I was chatting with Randall about this just last night, and he he was saying, you know, it's there were colonies, there were outposts. It was they would have had a, a global kind of outpost all around the world. So it's 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 possible, even likely, that that Atlantis existed in various different places, and it's. It's a it's almost a term now that you know you say Atlantis it gets it gets this connotation to it it's almost you yeah. know, a pseudo archaeological term yeah. but, but we it, thought it wasn't that always about the case. Troy as well we did Troy's yeah. another one but it, it, Troy's it, one until what year was was Troy actually physically discovered oh that, it, 1890 18 something like that yeah. late 1800s I want to say I, so up until that moment they thought that Troy was just a myth fantasy yeah, yeah it was a, just fantasy yeah. well I, that, yeah I mean and that but people used to take Atlantis a lot more seriously it was something happened like in the 1960s there was a lot of legitimate scientific work being done on like the in the Azores region looking at the possibility of subversion and can can there be large parts of land that sink and then something happened where it's like the the establishment just turned on it and it became this pseudo term and anyone who mentioned it was kind of dismissed and 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 shaken off in the same way that you know they're treating guys like Hancock and uh, with mm. his ancient uh, apocalypse series are now yeah. but I don't know I don't know specifically what happened but it used to be taken a lot more seriously and there's certainly a lot of uh, evidence coming from prior cultures that something did exist, and I think now we've we've got a, a massive body of evidence that suggests our our history as a species and as a civilization goes way back much further than than what we've thought about as being our own history since. You know, for, I mean, right up until 2006, we pretty much thought, nope, the last 6,000 years, that's when we stopped being cavemen and became, you know, started building cities and organized societies and things like that. And that's that well, the, the gatekeepers of academia, you know, just the stuff that you two gentlemen put on your YouTube pages should open up fields of inquiry. People should be reaching out to you. They should be having you speak at universities. They should be watching your videos. They should be like, oh, my God. Like, look at all this actual evidence, not speculation, not like, look, you're looking at physical geological evidence, physical erosion evidence, and then all the stuff with the structure that lines up exactly with the stories of Atlantis. 
It's fucking wild. It's yeah. it's one of these things. Like I'm a very open minded person. I'm not. I can't say like with 100 percent certainty. I mean, anything's possible. Of course. But even. But I'm like, there's so many similarities that if nothing else, it shouldn't be ignored. The the off the west coast should be drilled and and run with uh, some lidar to see what's going on underneath that uh, sediment. And not only that, like let's just pretend. Okay, Atlantis never existed. The wrist shot's not it. Well then, let's like focus in then on why is this catastrophic water erosion going through the Sahara. 60 million years more recently than it was supposed to. There's another image in there, Jamie, that shows where the Trans-Saharan Seaway went, and it does not reflect it going west over the Western Sahara. So I'm like, in the context of climate science, I'm like, this should be discussed. What, why is nobody talking about the Sahara was green potentially 4,500 years ago, which is, by the way, the same alleged date as the Great Pyramid's construction in Giza 4,500 <laughs> years ago. So check yeah. this out. As you can see, it does not... Uh, annotate the water erosion going west over the wrist shot. But as we just showed, it clearly did. Mm. And this was based on a 20-year study. Wonderful people did this. I don't know. I have no explanation for why it, they don't annotate it going west. But it clearly did. And not only that, it went uh, east of Niger uh, along Chad, which, you know, I showed you the water erosion along the volcano. So what I'm suggesting is that either something else separate happened or they just missed something because... Again, the Sahara is a big place, and they can only search so many places. When they did this, did they have the sort of satellite imagery that are available today? No. Well, I can't say no. Satellites were certainly around. What year was this? Uh, this is like I want to say 2007 or so. I, oh, I could no. be wrong, and I got to double check that. Totally um, would have had satellite. Yeah. yeah. So, but uh, I know that they were doing some boots on the ground stuff. Maybe um, they just didn't think to look at that particular areas being uh, maybe they had like a preconceived notion that's what i suspect i don't think they are intentionally not looking at it but i feel like you know when it comes to you know you're mentioning like we should be speaking at universities you know joe the first thing they ever say is like oh, oh jimmy he's a he was a fraud investigator he's from the corporate world like ben uh ben has an awesome story too by the way coming out of the corporate world you got uh we could get into that yeah so you got going. patents with okay all right tech guy um we'll get into that um but like so that's the immediately dismiss and i want to make an interesting point which is that so, it's so crazy that they're gatekeepers yeah they the, well, the, the egocentric ego-minded gatekeepers like they don't want anyone to discover something they haven't noticed 100 percent. Right. it and, is it is totally what they do it's almost unbelievable coming as like an outsider to this i couldn't be more surprised to see the reactions to anything alternative because it's like wait a second the success of uh the things that we present the success of graham hancock's ancient apocalypse show this any true enthusiast of the ancient of ancient history or geology this is a win-win for everybody because it's gaining interest in these unanswered questions and yeah. everybody would stand to gain from it like archaeologists like if well, it's up to me they'd be out there digging right now because yeah, of this but stuff. the problem is they have already made these assertions they've already published papers they've already written books That's, and those mm -hmm. books would now be disproven and they would look foolish and they do not want to look foolish it, no. it, it's, they're, it's they're throwing everything in this at, at ancient apocalypse. They really are. Every word Everything. in the book. I don't yeah, even want to utter it. White supremacy. How <laughs> is it white supremacy to say that people who lived 12,000 years ago, we have zero idea what color they were. We have zero idea what they looked like. We, we, yeah. we're, we're literally talking about human beings, fellow human beings, right. that created some unbelievably magnificent structures that exist today. Yeah. To call that or to somehow or another connect that to racism. Like, how? It's, yeah, it's it, ad hominem. The only reason why you would do this, it's one of two things. I've listened to their arguments, and it's either one of two. I'm just going to say it. I'll be bold. They're either really stupid to associate that with racism, 
or they're doing exactly what I see going for anyone that says something counter to a narrative, which is we need to cancel this person, shut them up. Yes. And and I had a friend reach out to me when this show came out and they Googled, I don't even want to say this, but it has to be said. They Googled Graham Hancock and there's articles at the top linking him to white supremacy. I'm like, this is in my mind. That's why they do it, because they want to just shout some doubt so on dumb. you. Well, it's trying it's, to generate outrage without addressing the things that he says and, right. and re- addressing his it's specific so arguments. He's married to an Indian woman. It's well, still, everything that, about it is a, fucking dumb. And he's yeah. one of the. I know, he's I have, the nicest guy in the world. I know Graham pretty well, too. He's Yeah, he is. He's one he's, of the most considerate people you ever meet. He's so nice, and he's he just is. so inquisitive, and he's been so courageous his entire career. And the more time goes on, the more he's validated. It's the true. More really? His, yes. I mean, you go back to Fingerprints of the Gods. I read about that in the 90s. I read yeah. that book in the 90s, and that's when I got really into his stuff. And back yeah. then, if you brought it up, people would go, oh, he's a kook. This is not... But as the internet came about and as more and more information became available and then the discovery of Gobekli Tepe yeah. just threw the whole thing on its head. Yeah. He has... Cap, ar- Cap. I would argue he's done more to... Sorry, Ben. Right. We're going... He, Anything more, he's done more for the it, it, bringing the topic of the mysteries of lost ancient civilizations, cataclysms, than arguably anyone else on earth. Because yeah. of him, I saw him on your show. I go down the rabbit hole, start looking, I start talking about these things. So it's like everyone should be th- saying thank you to Graham Hancock. They're, Sorry, Ben. They're just so scared that he's going to make them look like fools yeah. because yeah. they wrote these books when they had limited access to information and they made these very, like, like, direct assertions they, like right. this is it's, what happened and they're wrong it's the, right. it's a position of power it's yeah. it's archaeology not being a hard science that does you know exp- uh, hypothesis experiment result like you can do in things like chemistry for example those these guys they they rise to their positions of powers in, in in academia they become their their whole personal i think sense of self is yes. somehow tied up around this uh position as an expert in this story and it's that's all it is ultimately we're looking at we're trying to interpret the very scant evidence that is history. We're looking through the bones of many civilizations. People have destroyed things, rebuilt them, destroyed them, rebuilt them. You're trying to put that together and evaluate this evidence. And yeah, they, they write the textbooks and they've, they kind of have that position of power. And when new evidence comes along that I think threatens that, that's why you get in some way such a strong reaction because you're almost threatening the person. Yeah. I think they take it that way. And it's, well, most certainly, it's unfortunate. I'm, I'm sure you've seen the, uh, the original uh, discussion that Graham had with uh, Dr. Robert Schock when they brought the evidence of the water erosion to the Sphinx. Sphinx. Mm-hmm. And then that archaeologist is like laughing, but yep. like not really laughing. Like, what evidence do we have <laughs> of an ancient civilization 11,000 years ago? Well, now we have a lot, fuck face. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. a lot. You yeah. know, there's, there's, uh, Gobekli Tepe is massive. And then there's another structure that's close to Gobekli Tepe. Karahan Tepe. Yeah. In fact, they're discovering many of them now. That's, it's, yeah, it's not only that. The whole story, as we're told it in dynastic Egypt, just doesn't make sense from a number of different perspectives. It's as if they arose out of nowhere, like perfect, and then degraded over right. time. When you think about it, things like the pyramids, I mean, those are the f- the first pyramids ever made, like these yeah. massive megalithic stone pyramids that that have all of these different elements of sacred geometry and precision and all these different aspects of incredible engineering built into them. They did. That's apparently what they did first. They kept building pyramids after that time. And they sucked. They sucked. Yeah, well, they're adobe. They're made yeah. from mud brick. Well, and they, they fall don't apart. really know. That's what, what do you got here, Jeremy? 
Tepe. Karahan Tepe. Yeah, I'm gonna be there in April. Look, yeah. are you really? Yeah. Look at this that face. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that look at was that an, face. An, That's scary. I don't want to. It's in, <laughs> another right? that look scary. Video of yours that I watched today was a video that showed the similarities, not just between pyramids, but between construction methods all over the world in Japan. I had no idea that they had made the sarcophagus covers in Japan mm -hmm. that were exactly the same shape right as the one and odd oddly shaped exactly the same as the is same as the ones they made in Egypt and in a place there is supposed to be zero connection between ancient Japan and ancient Egypt that's not supposed to exist and mm -hmm. if you compare that sarcophagus work it's like it looks unbelievable uncannily similar impossible almost impossible that two people would come up with the same design right because it's yeah. it's like coming up with you know I don't know I mean I don't have a good like if someone like this lighter if right. someone buy I mean this is an unusually shaped lighter the way the top pops the right. if someone just coincidentally without any internet came up with this on the other side of the planet be like how the fuck it's so oddly shaped yeah. right. like the buttons in the same place the lids in the same place there's no way right that's what it yeah. looks like to me and the fact that it took an enormous amount of effort to make and move and put it into place because you're talking about incredibly heavy stone and hard stone. Yeah, like that's the other people don't appreciate just how hard this igneous stone is that these things are made from. Like granite, granodiorite, cyanite. Like these are it's harder than steel. Like it's it's you know there's six point five seven on the Mohs scale. It's it's incredible work. Like and the fact that these similar construction methods existed in Peru, yep. they existed in Egypt, they Easter existed Island. in Japan, and right. we don't know how old stone is. Right. That's what's really wacky. When we talk about like carbon dating, they're not carbon dating stone. None. They they really don't know. So right. even when they they go back to ancient Egypt and they say, oh, we we date the pyramids construction to two thousand five hundred BC, it's a fucking guess. That's what I think. <laughs> it's a guess. It really is. It, re it has to be a guess. It well, really can't be anything other than a guess. They can measure organic matter. They can measure stuff that's in between the stones. But we have no idea when that was put there. If if something existed for tens of thousands of years before we're dating it. We really wouldn't know. We would have evidence that these, of course people would still live there. Of course people would still live around them. And we would have evidence that those people left stuff behind that was a certain age, but we have zero evidence as to how old those things are. Right. That's right. And, and then, when I found that out, I was baffled. Yeah. Yeah. Because I always thought they knew 2,500 BC, rock solid. This is it. Well, they they tie it to the the the, the guy, the the king. They know when Khufu right. lived, and so they try and tie. And literally with the Great Pyramid, very little evidence. There's like a uh, this big statue of him that they found down in the Valley Temple, nowhere near it. And then there's a, a glyph on the inside. There's a lot of controversy around that. But there, there are some of these artifacts. They do for that reason because they, they date a lot of stuff based on the site that they found it. So if there's organic material at the site that they found it, and what's been – I've found it's, it's a kind of like a smoking gun piece in all of this is all the vases. So you, are you familiar with the, yes, the incredible stone yes, vases yes, that they make yeah, in please Egypt? Please talk about them. Yeah, so they in, in there is a, a collection of these things. They're made from igneous stone. They're, and, Jamie, I've got a few pictures of the vases in that vase directory. And they date back. It's What's interesting to me about these is, is that they, they, they're some of the earliest types of uh, artifacts that we find. They stretch back far into what we would call pre-dynastic time, basically Mesolithic times. Uh, right back to even 15,000 years ago, there was a site called Toshka, um, that uh, that was dug up. It's underwater now, but in this and it was a primitive burial. There was a guy uh, that was curled up in this in this burial site 
on the side. Go back to that, Jamie, that one, the thin card one. Yeah, what, so, what's going on there? So this is an example, and these vases display just astonishing aspects of precision and engineering. So this is an example of just how thin this material is. So it's igneous stone. This might be porphyry or something like this. A very, very hard stone, very hard to work, but also brittle when it becomes thin. You can see the giant crystal occlusions, those the white marks in it. This stuff becomes brittle, yet it's been worked down to this thinness because this one's been damaged and you can see how thin that interior mm. wall is. Petrie, Flinders Petrie is a, a great Egyptologist, the first guy to really start applying engineering principles from the industrial age to this stuff. He found one, he talks about one in his work that was one fortieth of an inch thick. Wow. A fortieth of an inch thick. And the, the interesting thing about these vases, there's 50,000 plus of them were discovered beneath the step pyramid of Djoser. Uh, he collected them all up. And even in the museum that's at Saqqara, they talk about, yeah, this is so... I've been down underneath the step pyramid. This is a fragment of, a, of one of these vases that I found you can handle down there. And even in the museum there, they talk about, well, these he didn't have them made. He, these were inherited objects from earlier times. Like, they, they get the concept right. And so these things stretch back way back into time. There's pre-dynastic artifacts from pre-dynastic burials. But there's always these sort of arguments. Well, can you do this by hand? Can you not... Um, and so recently there's been some work done. I've been working with a couple of guys, um, the son of, uh, Christopher Dunn, who wrote some real seminal, uh, textbooks on ancient Egyptian technology, his son, Alex, uh, and Nick Sierra, they're, uh, qualified like professional metrologists. They work, they work for Rolls Royce in Indianapolis. They, uh, they make like, you know, aerospace parts, turbine blades, things like that. They've got their hands on a pre-dynastic Egyptian vase. And for the first time, they've actually been able to scan this thing using a structured light scanner and define the specific elements of precision on it. And it's just astounding. Like this is, this, this puts the whole concept of can these even remotely been made by hand to bed? Like these things had to have been made on a machine and made with extreme precision because this vase that is, is pre-dynastic, this is a, a picture of the vase here that they found in, in a private collection, because I should say generally archaeologists, Egyptologists, they're not, engineers they're not particularly interested in sort of how things were manufactured so what what they've done is they've taken this and put this in a machine and it, it it's a structured light scanner so it creates like a point cloud of different lights and then you match a geometric shape to it be that like a, a flat plane a cylinder a sphere a, a cone and then you can perform sort of geometric uh, calculations on it and define things like precision so if you go back to that uh the surface a the vase lip right so this is you can see down on the bottom, they, they've created a, a, a point cloud of the top of this lip, so the flatness, and it's, they've called this surface A. It's comprised of 3,813 uh, points, and it's within three thousandths of an inch uh, of being basically perfectly flat. Wow. But that's three thousandths of three an inch. Three thousandths of an inch. And this is over who knows how many thousands of years well, of erosion and it, sand and dust and wind. Exactly. And it's, it's at least... 5,000 years old. I, I suspect this could be far older than that. Now, what's interesting, once you start doing this, and if you go to the next one, Jamie, you now, he's now, now we're looking at the, the lip. So this, you take a cylinder and you match, you basically take 10,000 points plus and you match the, the, the inside, the mouth of the vase to a cylinder. And what you can now measure that against the other surface. So if you think of like the top of it as being like the x-axis, this is now your y-axis. So that first symbol here, the perpendicular symbol, what, you sh what it's showing is that how perpendicular is this cylinder on its axis relative to the top of the vase, the surface A that's on the top, within one thousandth of an inch. One thousandth. So it's perfectly perpendicular to within one thousandth of an inch 
of the top of the vase. And then the second reading here shows you how perfectly, what's the circular error, like what's the circularity of it it's within 13 thousandths of an inch of being perfectly circular. How and are you going to do that by hand? You, you, well, you can't. This is, this is the thing. And if you, you, you go, literally can't? No, the, no one's ever been at you. It gets, you can, you, if you rub two surfaces together, you can make them flat. But when you start looking at the, the real teller in, in precision and in these discussions about ancient engineering, the, the, it's an easy thing to understand when we talk about 90-degree turns and flat surfaces. But what gets really interesting is when you start talking about one surface in relation to another. And remember, these objects like the big boxes in the Serapium that weigh like 70 tons, you've got surfaces you know, 11 feet apart. It's the relativity of one surface to another. So how flat, how straight is this in relationship to this surface? Right. And with this vase, the, the, the incredible thing about it is, is that it's as you go down it, there's a, another slide if go you can look at the, the yeah. Um, and you should mention how much this equipment costs real quick. Well, how yeah, so these technology. structured light scanners are like $250,000. They're, they're professional. Yeah, this is, this is absolutely a tool that gets used in aerospace quite a bit. So no one's ever um, really done this type of work. So um, this, and it does, there's nothing like this approaching. You can't do this with handwork, this type of thing. But if you slip, skip to the next one. So now it's, this is like, this is a great example so what you're doing here is is measuring the circularity. Go to the next one because the lug handles are kind of the really important part of this. It's an interesting thing. So for one thing, it's showing you that, okay, they, they solved the problem of carving granite. It's made from granite. It's actually made from the same rose granite that the, the box in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid is. Yeah, not pottery, just to, not in case pottery. someone doesn't right. understand this what this is. Right. This isn't pottery. I, I, People can, often can call it pottery. Can I pause real quick? Yeah. When you talk about these measurements, yeah. what kind of measurements can be achieved through ceramic pottery? Well, ceramic pottery... If you're spinning on a wheel, I, I'm not even sure. You might be able to get down to, to tenths of an inch or, 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 or half. Like, fractions. But you would never get to a thousandth. Not to a thousandth, no. And, and this is carved. So this is carved out right. of stone. Right. Um, but I'm stone. just saying, like, if you think about a pottery wheel spinning yeah. and you think about the precision involved in that and you look at it, it's beautiful. It seems oh, symmetrical. It seems But nothing no. compared to this kind of symmetry. So to give you an example, so a thousandth of an inch, uh, if you take a sheet of printer paper like this, uh, this is that's about seven and a half thousandths thick. Holy shit! A, a human hair, two to three thousandths of an inch. So it's half a the human size hair. of a human hair within of being perfect. Of being within, perfect. Yes. So holy shit! That's how that's how precisely aligned the mouth of the vase is. Now, so again, we've carved this out of stone, and remember, they don't even the Egyptologists don't say that these they're not spun, they're not they're not cast and created. They say that the Egyptians, you know, used very primitive tools to make these pounding stones, chisels, flint chisels. What did they say in the face of this? They don't. So they don't address data. it. In generally, they don't address the evidence for precision. Should this hold is hold them down, huh? <laughs> Should hold them down. Well, this is what I'm. Like, this... Literally grab them and <laughs> yeah. go. Tell me what the fuck is going on. <laughs> this work should should do a bit of that because there's always been arguments. How many of these are there? I mean, well, it's not just one perfect one that you're talking no. about. No. Oh no. This is the only one we've managed to scan so far, and I would I would love to say that if because you, you can't get your hands on these things. In general, um, curators of Egyptology museums aren't interested in their in their manufacturing or engineering, and they don't gain you don't get access to these vases to do it. This how one came from not, a. How could they not be interested in that? I don't know. It's it's it blows my mind. So here's an example of like another perfect. I'd love to scan this one. It's one of my favorites. It's like you can see the symmetry inherent in the vase just in the fact that it's sitting on like. Almost like the an eggshell, like it's yeah. it's so perfect. Um, but 
what what it what that study is showing and what those that that precision that's now been measured is showing that okay these were turned on a machine and not only were they turned on a machine but when you think about the shape of the vase it has these lug handles right on each side they're like got little holes yeah through. those can't be turned those, those right. you can't if you think of it spinning and you cut and this is being carved by a machine right those lug handles can't be turned you would have to cut out like a round thing around it and then take another tool and, and shape the lug handles without turning it. Now, in precision manufacturing, when you introduce another tool, that introduces error, even in our best processes today, and we just don't see that on this vase. Like, those lug handles are within one thousandth of an inch of being perfectly aligned with those other surfaces of the vase. It's that, it's that relativity of one section of the vase to another that means, A, unquestionably not possible by hand, but B... This has been designed. Like somebody made a model of this and they had a very sophisticated bit of machinery that must have carved it out. And when we talk about this machinery, like what are the what's the speculation? <laughs> I mean, what do they think was used to carve these things? Is there any markings on them that would yes. indicate? Yeah, there is. So this is a whole other discussion when you get into the depths of of, of this work. So when you look at Ancient Egypt and the way that gets treated, they found tools. And I should say it's very rare to find metal in the ancient world, right? As soon as the Bronze Age starts, any metal, super precious, gets smelted down, turned into tools, weapons, things like that. So it's very rare to find metal in general. But across ancient Egypt, they found a bunch of tools. So they found some, you know, copper chisels, bronze chisels, very primitive stuff, uh, some wooden, you know, squares and plumb bobs, uh, pounding stones, flint chisels. So those are the tools that are found. And in general... It's like the, the, the orthodoxy here and the academia will do everything they can to just hammer everything you find into this, into this box and say, these are the tools we've found, so therefore everything's made by these tools. Now, outside of that, there's a whole realm of what I would call machining marks that exist all over these sites in Egypt. There's a place called Abu Sia that's been closed to the public for more than 100 years. You have to get special permission to go there. It's one of my favorite sites. It's an old kingdom site, like Fifth Dynasty. And all over this site, you find amazing evidence for massive circular saws you see machining marks there are there are these tube drills I, i've got like an hour-long documentary just on the tube drills because there's been an argument going on for 150 years about the tube drills there is evidence for very sophisticated and powerful tools that is etched into these artifacts from the very earliest points in egypt all over the place and a lot of these things they disappear in later periods of time go back to that image jimmy the, jamie the just had look at that yeah so here's an example um i i I didn't send you any of the machining marks, but I can show them to you at some point. Um, yeah, so you, you find uh, the tube drills are really interesting because it's a very thin tool. And, and what they would do, they range in size from like a half inch up to nine inches. And are those plugs that were removed yeah. from the stone? So it's like a hollow, a hollow tool that gets, that gets cut down and then you snap off the core. And now Flinders Petrie... Uh, he was, uh, you familiar with Petrie? He was, he was around like late 1800s, early 1900s. I, I use his work a lot in the stuff that I do because he was the first guy to apply engineering principles to what we saw, which is kind of this meta point that messes with my head a bit in that it took our civilization up to the industrial age to even be able to put some of this stuff into context. Like anyone else that looked at this stuff before we understood what machining was, what working in this stone was, what it looks like to cut stone with a circular saw, we, you, just, you don't have the context to explain it. So we had to get to the industrial age and develop sort of mass manufacturing and engineering for us to even recognize what we're seeing here. Wow. So he, 
he found uh, there's a famous core. It's called Petrie's Core Number Seven, and it was it's a it's a drill core from one of these holes. It's in granite, and it's located in the Petrie Museum. And it, this museum is one that actually allows research appointments, and you can analyze it. And it's been analyzed several times. There's been an argument that's been going on for literally 150 years about this core because what Petrie found and what Chris done. Chris Dunn later verified, yeah, that's Petrie's call number seven, exactly right there. That, in fact, might even be Chris Dunn's photo. Um, those spiral, gro- that groove that goes around it, very obvious striations, right? Mm-hmm. So it's been incontrovertibly shown that that's a spiral. It's a, it's a spiral. So it, it's not like just horizontal striation. So if you can imagine the way we do it today, with our, we have tube drills and core drills. It spins really fast makes lots of little marks. There's been studies done looking at those at those sort of marks. That's not what we're seeing here. What we see here is a continuous spiral groove of at least two points. So it's, it's a twin spiral that runs down the length of the core. Now, from that and analyzing that, you can determine a few things, things like how f- fast was this drill or how, how quickly was this drill penetrating the granite. And Petrie and Dunn both analyzed it and looked at it. Well, it's about a one in 60 rate. So for each, say, 60 inches of horizontal travel, it's going one inch into the stone. So imagine that. So if you, if you take, a, take a spiral and, and straighten it out, mm-hmm. like, and you just imagine, all right, 60 inches this way, you're getting one inch of vertical travel. That, that figure is 500 times greater than we can achieve today in terms of how, 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 how fast it penetrates the granite. 500, 500 times, times greater. Now, it, it, it doesn't mean it cut quicker. It could have been moving slowly, like it might have been turning slowly. Right. But it's penetrating the granite at a rate far greater than what we can achieve with our technology today. <laughs> this is why it's so important to bring outside eyes into this, whether it's yeah. an aerospace engineer. Like this is, you know, going back to Troy, that was discovered by a businessman. He wasn't an archaeologist. That's something that most people don't know. Mm-hmm. It's like when you bring an outside set of eyes with different sets of experiences, they'll pick up on things that others wouldn't. Look at that yeah. image that... that- that all the spiral lines around that that's just amazing yeah so you can go there and i intend to do this i might be in the uk this year and i intend to do that it's called the cotton wrap test you can actually under a little microscope run a piece of cotton through that groove Mm. now they took they actually took it a step further and they made a latex um molding of it right and so chris then they sent it to chris dunn the petri museum did this and then he he like cut reference holes in it cut it out and then geometrically proved basically that this is a spiral groove like it definitely it starts above the line and ends below the line he showed that that's it and what i would love to see happen is we could get this core and then scan it with that structured light scanner because it will put that stuff to bed no problem like like there's as far as i'm concerned this is a spiral groove the case has been closed but people still argue the point um but it's it's a hundred percent an indicator of some form of technology that's far away beyond the primitive stuff that we attribute to the dynastic Egyptians. So to me, that's, it's, it's an indicator that, and I don't think the dynastic Egyptians, they don't describe having this type of capability. We've never found any tools from them that can do this type of thing. So I think what we're looking at here with dynastic Egypt is, is a, a story, it's a longer timeline. It's a story of inheritance. Mm. I think they inherited a lot of artifacts, potentially some architecture, potentially p- like parts of the pyramids or well, that type of thing. And then that's where they, their culture grew from that. I mean, they themselves describe their history as going back nearly 40,000 years. Like it's way, they, they themselves look at themselves, they, they look at them like a legacy culture. They, you know, this is in the Palermo stone. It's in the, the Turin papyrus. The priest Manetho talks about it. There's a lot of different, yeah. So that, that actual, uh, the yellow image in the center, that's the latex core. No, up to, up to the right. Yeah, that one. That's the latex core. 
that uh, the latex molding of core number seven. But this, the crazy thing is too, this is the only core that's really been analysed. Like these things, they're all over the place. Like the, the, lots of museums have them. I'd love to see a body of work be built up with true analysis of it because. Do they all have similar markings on them? Well, yes. And so you can see the holes on a lot of the sites that seem to have a very clear striation on them. Uh, some of the tubes, the, the actual drill cores, if you like, seem to have it that way. Uh, there were other techniques used. So the argument that how the, the, the mainstream archaeologists describe them uh, solving this problem is they, well, they had a copper tube and they got sand and they put a rock on top of the tube in a bow drill and they just went back and forth with this. And they did some experiments and it, look, grinding works ultimately because sand has little chunks of like quartz yeah. and corundum in it. But uh -huh. it takes days and days and days to cut this much. Right. And, and the markings and the, and the machining doesn't look anything like what you see in the ancient examples. And, and what's more and what's kind of interesting here is that the actual, the drill cores that they found, they're tapered. So actually they taper in like this. The holes are straight, the cores are tapered. So it means that the tool itself must have been had a had like a almost like a cone shape, and it the thing that because some people say well those lines could have been created when the tool was removed and I'm like no, if if you think about a tapered tool like this the second you take any pressure off it that's the whole tool removes itself from the surface of the stone so those marks can't be made by uh, withdrawal of the tool it's a hundred percent something going on and and Petrie back in the you know late eighteen hundreds was scratching his head looking at this stuff and he goes. There must have been a weight of two or three tons on one. Like he, he just he sort of said it was well a, a, a jeweled tube of bronze that did this, but he was looking at it. He knew a mystery when he saw it, and he couldn't explain it. Um, what's the speculation? Like, what's the wildest speculation as to how these things were made? Well, I, I'm I'm pretty convinced that there was. Uh, it was a, there's obviously saws and tube drills that are powered by something. Now I I think it, it may not just be pure friction. There might be ultrasonics involved. One of the whole interesting things I like about this space is it's like, and this has to do with even like the energy stuff that Randall was talking about that he's coming to talk about as well. There are realms of science that sit outside of our understanding. We'll know more tomorrow in ten years in a thousand years about science. So I think when we look at some of these. These things in the past, we should be open-minded enough to consider the possibility that some of the answers may sit outside of our current perspective. Because, you know, our tendency is to look at it all and try and s how would we do it? Right. How but would does our anybody have wild speculation that you've entertained? Uh, yeah, I think there's yeah. So one of the topics that often gets mentioned here is is uh, like ultrasonic drilling. So having having it resonate at a frequency that matches the native frequency of the rock and sort of separating the. Uh, the, the rock more easily and that's a technology that we're developing like we do some ultrasonic drilling like this today with jewelry and stuff and it's you literally vibrate you find the correct vibration you can put like a little star shaped bit through a stone uh, they do it in like small work I've seen lots of examples and if you turn off the machine it's like Excalibur stuck in the stone you, you can't get that thing out like it's it takes you need that vibration to go through it uh, plasma you can even go as far as well they were softening the stone somehow with, with some molecular technology um, speculation like that. Uh, I would also say that some of these examples of technology and machining extend way up to the, these massive objects. Like you have thousand ton single piece objects that also exhibit some of these signs of precision engineering. So you might be talking about some truly giant machines that made them. Uh, giant columns and, and statues and things like that. And what do you, 
what do conventional archaeologists say when they're confronted by all of this data, the pottery, or excuse me, the uh, the vases, this this stuff that you're looking at here? It's, it's what you, do they say? Well, you either get you either just get a, a, a denial and they won't address it, and you get dismissed as as a as just being ridiculous pseudo archaeology fantasy theory type thing. Or in the case of the tube drills, for example, they they will. And this is a funny story because they will argue that no, no, it's not spiral. The grooves on that thing aren't spiral. And in fact, in the textbook, this is what Chris Dunn found out. In the textbook that they, where they do try to address the engineering with that tube drill, they took the photo of the tube drill and they just tilted it just a little bit. So when you look at it on the page, the lines look horizontal. Ah. It's literally in, it, in the textbook. Oh, the, they fucked with it in the textbook? Yeah. Why would they do that? They altered the photo because they, if, if you admit that that, that, the, the, that tube has a, spiral, has a spiral groove on it, now you're admitting that they're cutting into that granite at a ridiculous rate and you can't do any of that stuff with any of the primitive tools. It has this flow-on effect that just knocks over this house of cards that says all this stuff was built with primitive technology and our whole concept of the ancient Egyptians is, is off. Now, I, I don't think it's... I think the dynastic Egyptians, they used primitive tools. I think they just inherited a lot of stuff that's potentially a lot older, you know? I, and the proofs in the puddings with these vases, for example, that stuff, those, those things disappear from dynastic Egypt after the, like the third, fourth dynasty. They don't make them anymore. They make alabaster vases. Is that a tool? That, that's that? that's a, a fantastic example of, of what I would call an out-of-place artifact. It's a hollow tube of lapis lazuli, which, by the way, there's no quarries for lapis in, in Egypt. The, the closest one's probably in Afghanistan. Uh, came from Gebel Tree, found in a pre-dynastic site. It's hollowed. Uh, it's perfectly made. This is a very difficult thing to achieve, even with the modern machinery. And it's displayed in a cabinet next to what? Bone and beads. Uh, <laughs> right? And what is that? What it's, is that supposed to be? It, that tube? It's, a, it's something decorative, I assume. It has a gold sheath. But it's a hollow tube. I actually have pictures of it from the end on, not not probably in the ones you have, Jamie. But yeah, hollow tube. It's an out of place artifact. Like th these things from hard stone. They and these are more examples. Rock crystal, obsidian gourds and vases that show just perfect, like just very high degrees of sophistication. You should mention the pre-dynastic, the statue faces, oh, the symmetry. How can you possibly do that by hand? This will this will wow you. Yeah. So there's there's. There's a whole there's a whole category of aspects to the, the discussion around ancient technology, right? There's, and I have to be kind of careful about what you say. Oh, it is or it isn't, because in reality, we really haven't analysed that many artifacts. This vase work that we've done, first one we've actually taken a look at. That that core, that's the first one and the only one that's really been analysed. So I I, I characterise uh, something that's beyond the capabilities of these primitive ancient civilizations as being okay. Machining marks, tool marks, like these giant circular saws, tube drills. Precision, and there's elements to precision, and one of those is symmetry. And there's been some interesting studies done on the faces of giant statues. One in particular is the face of uh, Ramses. There's a, a statue at Luxor. They've since put the head back up. It's up now 30 feet in the air on top of the statue, but it used to be on the ground. And again, Chris Dunn was real seminal in this. He went and took a photo, like bang on, like very front on. And then what he did was you, you take a copy of that photo, you make it 50% transparent, make the original 50% transparent, you take one and you flip it like on that horizontal axis, then you overlay them, right? So you, you would see any, like the left to right, it's like overlaying the left side on the right side and it's perfect. 
Um, yeah, this it's this face here, but I wonder if you can find the picture of Chris Dunn. That's actually my there's my your video, video right there. Videos there <laughs> as well, where I get into it. Site, but that's not that picture you're asking for. No, it's similar, but there's it it shows other aspects of well the same radius of tool being used to cut. But what's interesting about the symmetry? It's perfectly symmetrical, left to right. Now, wow. this isn't. This isn't a feature in humans. No human is perfectly similar. Different nostrils, different eyeballs. It's also not something that is done in artwork. So you know, people often say, "Well, Michelangelo, you know, he carved David. It's a beautiful statue. I've seen it. it's incredible." But it's 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 human. It's not symmetrical. Symmetrical is you can't again you can't achieve that degree of symmetry just by eyeballing it and doing it by hand. And it's also something that's not really human. I think some of these statues almost look a bit inhuman because of that symmetry when they're, when they're up there and they're staring at you because it's, it's mind-blowing to actually go and look at them. But, uh, yeah, it's, 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 the other aspect is it, the most efficient way to create that would be to say, well, I'm, if you were going to design it in a computer, it's like, well, I'm going to create half this face in a program and make, map it out, and then I'm just going to reverse it and say, well, that's the other half. It's literally the most efficient way to do it, and that's kind of what we're seeing in some of these statues. It's, go back to that image, please. Yeah. It's virtual perfection. And it, how did what what what's the explanation for this that modern archaeologists use? They did it by hand, right? They That's do it they by claim. hand. That's literally what they say. You just don't. It, they're not engineers and construction experts at the end of the day. That's the problem. Is so it's very difficult to engage them on those specific details. And I've taken many engineers, master stonemasons, stone carvers, construction guys, and they almost they. A lot of them see it immediately. People that understand what it takes to both work in this material and to work at the scale that some of this stuff is worked in, they see it immediately. And they just dismiss the idea that this was done with literally pounding stones and, you know, copper chisels. It's a funny thing. They insist those things are how they were, they were done, but not once. No one ever has, has cut a single big slab of granite the size of a refrigerator in half. We've never gone that far. No one's demonstrated that, yep, you can take a copper bar and sand and grind your way through a refrigerator-sized block. And you're saying copper because we think that they didn't have steel back then. They didn't. Well, they, yeah, I mean, they, they, they didn't and not until later. There's no evidence for it. There's evidence for copper and there's, bronze. There's no evidence for it when we're talking about 2,500 right. BC. Exactly. Now, if there was some sort of very sophisticated civilization that yep. was tens of thousands of years before that yep. and they were wiped out, and right. then you're leaving behind these artifacts, and then people are claiming them as their own, and then trying to copy them. Imitation was a huge part of it, and we even see that. There's you go to the Egyptian museum, and there is there's these beautiful igneous stone vases made of made of uh, granite, and right next to them, in the same display, because they're found in the same place, there's a rough pottery vase that's not even turned, just put together by hand, and they've painted it with dots to make it look like granite, and it's shaped the same way as the granite vase. It's like oh, that's pure wow. imitation. Like this here. <laughs> I love this. This is one of my favorite examples. And this is like either First Dynasty or Pre-Dynastic. But, yeah, you have a hard igneous stone vessel made with perfection, and right next to what's clearly an imitation of it made from pottery, and they've even dotted it up to make it look like granite. Wow. All the most sophisticated artifacts, pyramids, everything, are all the oldest. It gets mm -hmm. worse as it goes on. And that, that 
doesn't yeah. that's not supposed to make sense. And like I when last time I was on with you, Joe, I was trying to articulate a point, which was that there was, uh, you know, a, a, a middle kingdom. There was the first kingdom. There was the and and there was these periods of revolt and revolution and missing yeah. history within Egypt. And there's three different kingdoms, and one of which was 126 years of lost history. Another was over 200 years. And the one point to mention about that is that that means that whoever took over and reestablished themselves. There's now no one alive at that period of time that was around prior to whatever it is that reset them, that that government or whatever they were. Yeah. So if there's 126 years of lost history, no one is now alive to say what was what before that year one of 126 years, if that makes sense. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 3,000 years. Like the dynastic Egyptian civilization itself is 3,000 years old. Now, they they do trace that back. 30 plus thousand years they describe a time that zeptepi when the gods walked the earth they literally talk about these uh, magical abilities that you could interpret as technology and then after that there was the shemsu hor the followers of horus these semi-divine mystical beings and they they have a list of kings and rulers that go back into that time it's it's only in our interpretation and our archaeologists that really say well you know what that's just myth and legend and after that you know we start Dynasty one, King one. That's that's actually history. That they, but, but what is their justification? Like, why do they say that it's just myth and legend? Like, where are they getting this information from? Well, well why are they making these? Well, because civilization can't exist until six thousand years ago. It says it right here, Joe. Memorize it. But <laughs> once they see Gobekli Tepe, don't yeah. they kind of have to re? <laughs> they should formulate. They refuse. They're like they're, Go- they say they're primitive. They say Gobekli Tepe was created by. They changed the and it literally happened. I saw this argument being made when Michael Sherman was here with Joe with uh, with Graham and Randall. They say it's made by hunter gatherers. They literally changed the definition of what it means to be a hunter gatherer, <laughs> rather than move that that precious date of civilization starting from six thousand years ago to you know ten thousand years ago with Gobekli Tepe. And yeah. I, I think it's ridiculous. Gobekli Tepe, you, you cannot produce that type of 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 a of a instru- of a installation without civilization right you just so many things the specialization of allowing someone to be able to carve you know 18 foot pillars that weigh several tons not just that but the fact that these animals on those pillars are 3d yeah you carve out Out. the stone to remove stone so that you have these giant pillars with like a lizard crawling up the side of it but the lizard extends out from the stone yeah high relief yeah it's not carved into it i mean that's just insane yeah as difficult as possible and you need yeah you know you need a population base to support this sort of the development of specialization like that it's as if to me, it's as if they just think, well, no, these hunter-gatherers, these dudes just want to get around the weekends, get away from the women, go and do some rock, you know, <laughs> little, little carving project on the weekend. We'll move some stones over here. And it's not just stone circles. There's buildings and cisterns and quarries. Like, there's, there's infrastructure at these sites as well. Yeah. And they're finding more and more of them in Turkey. And they, yeah, the fact that it all goes back to that date, it's just like, look, we should be shifting the date of civilization back. We've shifted back our date of, as a species. Yeah. I mean... Fossil record. We were 190,000 years old forever. They found a human jawbone in Morocco. Now we're 300,000 years old. The latest DNA evidence uh, looking at uh, our divergence from a common ancestor with the Neanderthals and studies on teeth morphology uh, put us at around sort of 800 to 900,000 years old, potentially. Like that's that's, wild. that's the range of us yeah. as being sitting around here as modern humans on the planet. That's so much time. Dude, it, it goes back to other periods. You think about it, like that's into other periods of warm, more more hospitable environments. Like it's beyond, mm. you go through a couple of different glaciation cycles in that time frame. And, you know, 
Give us a few warm, sunny days and enough shit to eat, and we're going to solve some friggin' problems. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for thousands of years. Yeah. Something wild about uh, Gobekli Tepe. How many of those pillars are still buried and not uh, excavated yet? Almost 200? It's like 5% of it's been excavated. And they found it by accident in the 90s. They did. (laughs) That's what's crazy. Uh, Like a, wasn't it a sheep herder? Yeah, yeah, it's a pot-bellied hill. Yeah, he found something sticking out of the ground. What's and then... this? Let me kick the dirt away <laughs> from this thing. And then, oh, yeah. what the fuck? Yeah, and giant. And you find 12,000-year-old massive stone structures Yeah, that predate what we think of as history by 6,000 years. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And it's it just finding more and more of it. And I, Yeah. You know, it's funny, Jimmy, you mentioned about an interesting point about the sediment, because I know, and Graham Hancock likes to talk about this too, underwater archaeology, the fact that sea levels have risen yes. three to 400 feet. One of the challenges with that is is exactly that, is that the, this catastrophic flooding that happened as a result of this violent process that got us to our climate of today and our sea level, is that, yeah, there's sediment everywhere. So even if you were, if there were cities, there were remains, the Younger Dryas and the cataclysm was so violent and such a savage event that it would have just smashed stuff. And even if there was stuff that's now underwater, it's like buried in sediment. Like it's not like you're going to just take pictures of the ocean floor all around these continents and find uh, lost cities. In a lot of places, this is all going to be buried in sediment right. and smashed into bits. Yeah, like gravel. It's very difficult. Just complete smithereens. Yeah. But yeah. they should go looking. <laughs> they should go looking. But I mean, it, it, just knowing the geological data, knowing that the Younger Dryas impact theory appears to be correct, knowing that there's people like Randall Carlson who have looked at the surface area of North America and shown oh, these yeah. incredible, <laughs> like, incredible pieces of evidence that there's massive water flooding Mm -hmm. that went through the impossible to understand like you can't comprehend the amount of water and the the amount of power that would come from that water and just from being impacted by a mile wide chunk of iron that slams into an ice cap it's it's crazy the channeled scab lens is absolutely spectacular i go i've done those trips with Randall a bunch of times it's such an incredible landscape when you put the, it in that context yeah and you're looking at this outflow from these floods like we've never like yeah it's these massive big coolies that are 800 foot high and you're standing on top of about 300 foot of sediment at the bottom and it's just ripped all this basalt out and then dumped it out into this massive big boulder spree that's also several hundred foot deep and you've got granite from Canada that's been carried by these floods down here and deposited in these giant icebergs. And it happened over a couple of days. Yeah, maybe up to a week. But yeah, it was, It was. I, I really think he's onto something with the, you know, like the major flood. Like there's so many problems with the Missoula flood, the main theory of like, well, lots of little floods that this ice dam reformed. And it's a good topic for Randall. But yeah, I think it, it definitely, it happened in a real short time because that whole Lake Missoula area where they say was the, the reformation of an ice dam, that's yeah. what they say. It's like, well, this reformed like 95 times and these floods happened. That's, we have no evidence for that. And there's nothing that ever supports that theory, least of all hydrodynamics of trying to form an ice dam that's like 2,000 feet deep and six miles wide. It's ridiculous. Like ice, <laughs> ice dams don't get that big. It can't happen. And it makes sense if you think about the fact that they believe we got hit by these massive chunks of rock and ice and stone and, and yeah. iron from space. Let me ask. 43,000 miles an hour. Yeah. (laughs) Boom. Into two mile thick ice. Two mile thick ice. Have you, let me ask you a question. Have you heard of the Carolina Bays? No. Okay. So this is, this is a great one because this ties into that. 
And this is like one of those things that nobody knows about, but it's a feature that's everywhere. And so up and down, if you search for Carolina Bays, Jamie, all up and down the East Coast, it's not just the Carolina. There are literally millions of these geological features. They're, they're literally bays. They're elliptical bays. The whole landscape's littered with them. We started to notice them with the advent of aerial photography. And then when we started doing LIDAR flyovers, we start to see them under everything. Millions of them. We also, that's on the, the East Coast. Then over in Missoula, we have what's called Missoula Rainwater Basins. Again, millions of them all over the, all over the landscape. Yeah, look at that. Carolina Bays. And they're, they're everywhere. They range in size from pretty small to pretty big, like miles in diameter. And they're all elliptical. They're all like a conic section. Now, what do they Look think? Look at that LIDAR one. It's really good. What do they think these are? So there's been some debate. And it, one of the mainstream um, opinions is that, they're, well, they're wind and sand, aeolian, lacustrian solution created. Uh, there, there's a, None of the experiments along the lines of wind uh, can back this up. The interesting thing about these is that they're all oriented in a specific direction. And what turns out is that there was a study done because a guy went and mapped out uh, thousands of them and, and lined them up. And it wasn't until he took into account the Coriolis effect, so the spin of the earth, that all, all of a sudden all these lines, the orientation of these bays all lined up at, at, at around Saginaw Bay, so which would have been buried in ice. So here's the, here's the theory that, that comes out about the Carolina Bays, is that there was a massive impact into the ice. And it it basically threw up splash damage of ice boulders the size of baseball stadiums on suborbital trajectories that then created this saturation bombardment and liquefaction of the entire East Coast and over there in Missoula uh, of the entire land. Like it's and that Im that image, nuts. Jamie, in that uh, lower left hand. Oh, I have a I have a laser pointer. Yeah, Hold yeah. <laughs> Jimmy gave me a laser pointer. I brought one. How's this bad? Boy the gift that will yeah. keep on giving. What do I have to do to give? Just press that button. Oh yeah, rip off we'll that little see. plastic thing. Just rip out it's the, like a safety. Oh no, no, no not just that. Rip, rip out not, the battery. The uh, little color. Here, you can use this one. It's ready to go. Okay, show me how to. I got gotcha. you. Okay, so this one right here. Whoa, Jesus! I know, crazy, right? It reflected back and yeah. the shit out of it. <laughs> <Did I get laughs> this is the yeah. real deal. So, is that what they look like in real life? Uh, they, they're more they're they're more elliptical than that in general. So if you look at the lidar imagery, but a lot of them, yeah, and so they're overlapping Ooh, as well. I can't see, bro. I'm gonna be shooting this thing at airplanes later. <laughs> I've, I got one that best eighteen dollars I've ever spent on Amazon ever. I got I got one that'll pop balloons. It's, it's really so much. Oh, dude, I bought it'll a pop few a balloon? years. Ago. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it comes with comes with a little case with safety goggles. You gotta put them on. I learned That's a so much from this show. <laughs> I learned so much. I'll bring so it. So these these are what is that in real? life is that so does it actually look like that it depends some of them are just farmland some of them are still lakes they have bodies of water in them they in mostly that, show up with lidar um oh look at this Jamie. there are a few spots this, uh, that you want to google earth yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> you can see them on uh on google earth there's oh that's there right that's there? that's that's more of a, a natural lake but they're they're literally everywhere and they overlap the whole landscape's made up of them didn't they find most of them through LIDAR, though? Yeah, so LIDAR. Under the so sentiment. They started yeah. to see them with aerial photography, and then LIDAR, they just turned up everywhere. Under farmland, I wish I, if I could, I didn't send you the photos of the bays uh, with LIDAR. But the, it's just the, the crazy story about their creation is that these are splash damage from a cosmic impact into the ice, and they think it may be related to the Younger Dry. So one of the impacts into the ice kicks up massive ice boulders that are coming in at like, you know, six or seven kilometers per second that take seven or eight minutes of these you know, ballistic trajectories to come down from Saginaw Bay and then just all over the wow. all over the East Coast and Missoula. And it 
it would have exterminated anything that lived there. It literally liquefied the ground. The ground would have the earth the earthquakes and the impacts would have turned the ground into quicksand. Like we see in we see in the aftermath of earthquakes, you have cars that are half buried in mud. Like it literally liquefies the earth. And it was just a saturation bombardment on the East Coast. And it's people now just, you know, we play golf on them and it's all this stuff. But there, it's a, it's a catastrophic landscape, the entire East Coast, wow. which and is likely off ex- the coast as well. So there, here, this image is what? Yeah. This is from These- South Carolina's government page talking about it. Carolina wow. base. You see their ellipse, they're elliptical, they all orient in a certain direction. And so the conventional explanation is wind? Wind and, and basically water. Yeah, but it doesn't, there's... None of the experiments make sense. There's a guy on YouTube, um, Antonio Zamora. He's also written a paper on it and a couple of books. But he shows that yeah, it's there's always been a bit of debate about them. It's it's but but the by far the best I think explanation for them is the is the ice ice boulder hypothesis. It's crazy to think about it. Like you know, impact happens over here. Eight, nine, ten minutes later, you just have this rain of just destruction coming from the sky that, that obliterates the entire coast of the of the United States. That's what you'd expect if there's something that hit at, at a high speed and, and of course, there'd be fallout. Things would get sprayed about. It, it would make sense to find that if the Younger Dryas climate impact hypothesis is true, there would be something like they've, that. They've done experiments. Yeah. So they've like you, you, you shoot like a bullet into ice at, at an angle and you, it shows like the shattering of ice and, the, and the, the, the orientation. So we can step backwards from the bays and look at, okay, what's the energy required for the impact and at what angle was the impact coming in? And they, it's something like it would have been probably a mile-wide impactor uh, up at Saginaw Bay that might have ejected that much ice to do that. We're so vulnerable. Yeah, <laughs> Cosmic We are gallery. so vulnerable. And we like to think this is all permanent. I mean, you think about how ridiculous human beings are. We spend most of our lives accumulating <laughs> stuff. Yeah trying to get status, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, fuck as many people as we can and get the biggest <laughs> house. And meanwhile, there's rocks headed our way that are going 45,000 miles an hour that could exterminate 90% of the population oh, yeah. instantaneously and completely erase every little bit of information we've ever accumulated. All the knowledge, all of our history, yeah. all of our understanding of physics, mathematics, the astronomy, everything Dude. gone. See ya. Goodbye. Welcome to being a fucking ape man again. Yep. Welcome to like eating whatever the fuck you can get in your mouth <laughs> and dying when you're 12. And having people try to steal all that from you. Yeah. Can you imagine? And within a, like what, like three, four generations, people would be. This is what I, I love the ancient Egypt analysis. You would be probably hammering a, a black rock into a shape like this. Like a phone and dancing around a cave, a, a fire, trying <laughs> yeah. to turn it on. Like if we dance around a fire hard enough, then this black rock will turn on and it'll right, give me the right. fucking answer to anything I want. Like it's just we'd be talking about plasma TVs like it's a, a legend in the past. I mean, you know? we would have no evidence of any of this stuff. No. Uh, and one of the weirder things about us is we insist on putting our stuff on hard drives. Oh God! Right, <laughs> and which is the the absolute worst thing. And then there was the Georgia Guidestones. People were like, well, let's blow that shit up. <laughs> yeah. Somebody blew that up. Something they interesting. They still haven't found anyone from that. I yeah. find that quite interesting. That uh, it, they called it an act of domestic terrorism. I mean, ex- exploded ordinance on on uh, government land um, or as, as public, and it's ran by the state. But they don't have anyone. They had a car drive right by it. They have in. No suspects. I find that really peculiar because there was supposed to be that buried time capsule. Yeah. Well, they allegedly dug it up and there was nothing there. 
I find that interesting. What do you, what's your crazy tinfoil hat conspiracy theory? Okay, here we go. It was created. <laughs> so oh. this is this is complicated. Who um, made the Georgia Guidestones, by the way? Do we know that? Yeah. Some of it's a mystery. Some of it we know. The pseudonym, um, right? The right. Yeah. It was um, it was a gentleman. By, I made a video about this. Yeah, R.C. Christian, and there was yep. a small group of donors. And they had had these um, written, uh, essentially, laws for if, like, in the event of a cataclysm in, in human history was to be reset, and this would be a guidance for how we should proceed. Yeah. And some people consider it to be very benign. I don't – I wasn't a, a big fan of them because it basically preaches, um, I would say, communism. It talks about having um, population control as far as not allowing – that there should be societal – pressure as well as legal pressure mm -hmm. on controlling how many kids people have moving forward and to keep a balance at 500 million. They don't say reduce the population to 500 million. That's where some of the conspiracies come in is that this is a depopulation agenda. But the conspiracy, to answer your question, some people suspect that what if, because there's a lot of talk today about people wanting to reduce population and you know we're destroying the earth, that what if the powers that be that did create them purposely if they're if they're under that way, if they're under their plan, they'd want to destroy them, remove that evidence, and pretend those guided stones didn't even exist in the first place, hmm. and remove that that time capsule. This is complete conspiracy. I don't know what I'm talking about, but what I do find interesting. <laughs> what so, is this? Is that the car? Yes. Yeah. Here's the most bizarre dun, thing of this dun, whole thing. Dun, dun, dun. Is that a charger? They that? destroyed. So as you can see, they, they caused significant damage. But the very next day, less than 24 hours after this bomb went off. They, they leveled it. They, they raised it to the ground because yeah. they said it was a safety hazard. But I'm like, this is the middle of a field. They can cordon off with police crime scene tape. And just being an Iraq veteran, like when there was an IED that go off, they'd have people come out and investigate this. They'd do an investigation. This was a bomb on, 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 the, on United States uh, you know, ground. And they leveled it the next day. And I'm like, where's all the forensic uh, teams coming in to try and like analyze the explosive evidence? It just seemed really, really... They urgently removed all evidence of this, and that's the part that makes my little conspiracy wheels go is because, you know, where's the true investigation? Where's the FBI? Where's the ATF? Hmm. Again, less than a day after that bomb went off, Bulldozed. they raised it to the ground. And nothing since. I mean, how have they not found this person? They, the, Why would they raise it to the ground? Why wouldn't they just fix it? Or they, I mean, maybe <laughs> it wasn't that. salvageable. I don't know. What I do know is that they quickly remove that thing and i just that just that's just a little bit weird why would you do that where's the atf where's all the people out there taking swabs of everything you know if there was a natural disaster that was imminent and it was headed our way and only a few people knew about it how much do you think they'd tell us they wouldn't no yeah i uh, wouldn't say a goddamn thing because we would go crazy uh, we'd wind up looting all the targets that's right yeah. target, First thing, target, walmart. Everyone. target and walmart <laughs> smash I'm, going to kmart. I'm going to last yeah, kmart starbucks um real quick uh did you hear what Elon Musk said on the Full Send podcast a few months ago? What? So there's uh, Full Send, the Nelk Boys, awesome guys, great podcast. Um, Elon Musk was on there. It's like four months ago. It has like 15 million views. It's a three-hour podcast. And at two hours and like 53 minutes, uh, they start talking about cataclysms and ice ages. And Elon Musk, this is out of all things that were discussed on the podcast – in my mind, the most interesting part of it all got zero coverage. It's like nobody talked about it, and it's because it's two hours and 50 minutes in. But Elon Musk says a couple things within just a few minutes. He says, if you want to go down a deep, deep rabbit hole, look into ice ages and how often they happen. He goes on to say that well, – Let's listen to this. Okay. Listen to If you back. read about ice ages. Yeah. Really? Like yeah, what? A deep rabbit hole on ice ages. What's so intriguing about them? The whole earth has just been through like – 
<laughs> the whole earth is just freezing. Like I said, this deep rabbit hole on Ice Ages. Deep rabbit hole. Where, where should we there's go? There's so many. Uh, just, uh, Wait, there's so many Wikipedia, what? Wikipedia, Wikipedia. 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 Yeah. Wikipedia. Yeah. Give us like a little oh. bit of a tidbit of it. Yeah, why do you love it? <laughs> why do I love it? I mean, I think it's just interesting. So interesting. That's that, that That how much Earth's climate has changed. And even where the where the magnetically where the poles are have has shifted over time. So, um, you know, anyway, there's, there's also been times where in the past where our galaxy has like collided with another galaxy, um, that, that probably, you know, threw things for a bit of a loop at the time. Was there like a conspiracy when it comes to ice ages or anything like that? Or is not really? No. Okay. When was the last ice age? How long ago was that? Well, we're technically in uh-huh. <laughs> sort of an ice age right now. Although it depends on what you call an ice age. What um, happened to global warming? Wait, but yeah, how so? Like, what defines an ice age at that point? Global warming is like, not so like it's cool anymore. Rabbit, Elon, it's, is it's, it? it's, it's, a, it's a deep rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> what do you do when you go down a deep rabbit hole, though? Is it YouTube videos, books, or how do you educate we, yourself on like this? Wikipedia, the internet, and yeah, b- b- books and clicking around the internet, googling Wikipedia, you know, YouTube, whatever. Um, so Twitter, um, can be interesting. Um, so the, I think there was probably something significant that happened at the, um, in, in the last ice age, because we don't see any evidence of writing. I want to say I'm using ice age in the colloquial term, um, of like when, when, when was it very snowy, uh, and, and where the glaciers came down far and where, where summer was short and winter was very long. And that was about 10,000 years ago. Um, so some, something happened around, I think around that ice age that, because we, we see no writing, How no, do you no pr- writing before that ice age. And we, we start to see writing pop up in multiple places on earth after that, after the most recent colloquially termed ice age. Um, so, yeah. Um, but like I said, there have been times when Earth has been extremely tropical and where it's been a snowball. Um, but these, these tend to occur over very long periods of time. The, the global warming thing we're talking about here. That's about it. Mm. He knows. Uh, for such an unbelievably smart individual and as rich and powerful as he is, I look at these topics that we're into, cataclysms, younger Dryas, uh, lost ancient technology. Magnetic poles. That's oh, yeah. the one thing. That's, That's I would like to dive one. into that. Um, yeah. I, he, I watched a video on that this morning. The the Adam and Eve video. Oh, oh yeah. The Chan that, Thomas thing. Jesus Christ. That's an interesting one. And is I that... Thought, how, how much of that is uh, agreed upon? That there could be a time where the magnetic poles actually shift. So yeah. this is science. That they, they say that the last one was like seven hundred and seventy-eight thousand years ago, and we're more we're like something like two hundred thousand years overdue. Um, <gasps> but the Adam and Eve story, the theory of that is that these it happens in cycles of sixty-five hundred years, and that it's a ninety-degree flip, but six days later or on the seventh day it corrects itself like the planet and, uh, flips not just it, the... it, it that correct it's a it's a planet flip 90 degree and that because of it the earth essentially does a standstill the sun will be direct will basically stay in the same spot causing heating like we've never experienced and that the wind and the waters continue with their momentum because essentially the wind travels at approximately a thousand miles an hour at the equator so the theory is that when that event happens 
it's going to be cataclysmic. And here's the wild thing is that in that document, it says uh, a continental-sized tsunami being two miles high. Well, I showed you the Emikusi volcano in Africa and the Sahara, which is at 11,300 feet that has salt as well as evidence of gastropods, sea life. That's two miles high. Yes. And I'm like... It's just it would make a lot of sense. Like if you look at the Bible and involving like revelations and it's saying like six days, uh, six days on the seventh day, yeah. God rested. In that document, it says six days, things start uh, simmering down a bit. And, se- you know, by day seven, things are st- starting over new. So what's the science behind this complete reversal of the magnetic pole? So real quick, this is the I, I the part that sets me off about this is that any article you ever read on this, it makes it crystal clear that. This will not be apocalyptic. <laughs> Maybe we'll have some – no, we'll potentially have some satellite communication issues that could affect our power grid and telecommunication systems, and that's going to be unfortunate. But don't worry. It's not a doomsday. I'm like, okay, first of all, if the grid goes down, that is doomsday. But number two, they don't know what they're talking about because they claim that the geo- geomagnetic pole shift is because of the interior, whether it's the iron core or whatever it is, the molten core – does a shift, and because of it, that's why the the compass will flip. But I'm like, if you look at the nature of earthquakes, they some originate in the crust, others originate in the mantle, in the in the parts that are that aren't solid. So I'm like, if you're saying that the interior that is molten does a shift, why on earth would you suggest that it wouldn't cause earthquakes or volcanic activity on the surface? So I feel like the I, every article I ever read on geomagnetic pole shifts, they go out of their way to say, don't worry, it's fine. And I'm like, but yet the evidence shows that it's accelerating. Back in just sure. the 1990s, uh, it was traveling the pole. The North Pole was transitioning at 10 miles a year. Now it's at 40 year, or almost 40 miles. It's accelerating. And then the Adam and Eve story, it talks about – actually, no, not the Adam and Eve story. There was a documentary on Nova years ago that the evidence shows that when they've studied all their other volcanic rock – uh, for prior known pole shifts, because keep in mind, there's hundreds that are known. This has happened throughout millions and millions of years. This is mainstream science. The poles do flip. They, they, but it's not that the Earth flips over. It's that the inside core does, and so your magnetic compass will flip. Like What causes it? Uh, so the whatever that molten core is, it does a shift inside. It allegedly happens in cycles, um, and we're long overdue. And when it happens, the other theory is that the the Earth's shields will be diminished. Well, definitely. So the mag- we know two things right now is that the the pole is moving, so it's off. I think it's it's off the even the South Pole might be off of Antarctica at this point, like the magnetic South. And then the magnetic field, consequently to this movement, is weakening. So we know our magnetic field, and that's where a lot of that danger is going to come from. Is is if the magnetic field keeps weakening, now everything cosmically that happens is going to hit the Earth, and, partic- and particularly us with our electronics, it's all going to get uh, eas- more easily smashed because the, the magnetic field is what protects us from solar flares and cosmic radiation and all this stuff. So as, as, as the field and the acceleration of that weakening of the field, sorry, is accelerating. So it's, it's, getting, it's getting weaker faster. So we seem to be heading towards an unknown or undetermined time where the poles may shift. Like the the polarity of the the, the Earth will shift, yeah, and the compasses. And are, flip, are there any estimates when. on when this could possibly take place? Uh, according to every article I ever read, like, oh, don't worry, it's probably be another thousand years. I'm yeah, like, you have be. no idea what you're talking about. It's accelerating, and if you look, there's a there. You don't have to Google this, Jamie. I don't know what the there's a mountain chain in eastern Oregon where it's the most. Uh, evidence of a pole shift, that there was uh, a volcano that was active during the shift. And if you take a compass along the the volcanic rock, the compass will slowly start to change. And yeah. so wherever like pottery or volcanic rock solidifies, that 
wherever the North Pole is at that time, the, it's an imprint, and the compass will continue to show that. It's really fun. Take a compass around volcanic rock, and it'll, it'll move the compass to wherever the North Pole was then. But here's the interesting part is that what it shows is that the pole shifts start slow, and then they accelerate to the point where uh, the day that it happens, you could potentially see the compass slowly moving. And then when you go back to this Adam and Eve story talking about the pole shift, they say that the event happens in approximately a quarter of a day, so six hours. So it's like it starts – it comes out of nowhere. And I'm like, what if – like I'm into the cosmic impact. That There's unbelievable evidence that definitely happened. But there's other things that happen on Earth, whether it's super volcanoes. What if that's related to pole shifts as well? And the reason why the evidence wouldn't be – uh, necessarily that we couldn't find it is because if the Adam and Eve story, if the if the details discussed in it are accurate, the reason why we're not seeing the evidence of it is because it flips right back and thus masks the evidence that it ever happened. So it's pretty wild. You guys are freaking me the fuck yeah. out, man. <laughs> hey, can you uh, just text Elon real quick? He knows. He talks about no writing before 10,000 years, yeah. and then he's saying it afterwards, and he's talking about deep, deep rabbit hole. I, I listen to what he says. He's careful with his words. And I mean, if since we know there's been five interglacial <laughs> periods over the last 450,000 years, this is the topic. You want to see something else? Donald, President Trump said it too. What did he say? He was, I have the, um, I have the video on my, my laptop. It's only 30 seconds long. If you YouTube, uh, Donald Trump on climate uh, climate scientists, basically they're talking about you know, global warming. And he says, he basically interrupts and says, it's going to cool for us though, isn't it? And uh, the scientist is like, oh, that's not what the evidence shows. And he starts, he kind of laughs. He goes, I'm not so sure you know that. And I'm like, of course he would know. People are like, oh, Donald Trump's anti science He's stupid. I'm like, he didn't just pull that out of his ass. He was, was this saying when something. he was the president. Yes, this was just a few years ago. This is probably his last year of his term. Um, it's I had I have the clip on my laptop. It's a 30 second clip or maybe 20 seconds. He said it's going to cool first though before, isn't it? And I'm like, I look at what Musk well, is saying and this evidence of the pole shift. I think that the true data on Earth is that the Earth is cold most of the time. That right now we should be grateful that it's nice and cozy because we can live when it's warm. But I think that the data might indicate that Earth is cold more often than it's hot. Well, that's what Randall Carlson has said. And mm -hmm. what Randall Carlson said that really freaked me out, he goes, global warming's not scary. He goes, global cooling, is that's what's really scary. But we're so concerned with our own guilt and impact because of industrialized society and what sort of you know, impact we're having on the climate and the earth and our air. And, and then there's this narrative that just gets repeated over and over and over again, this fear mongering and everyone gets freaked out. It's right. not to say that we aren't polluting. We certainly are not to say that we shouldn't improve. We certainly should. Sure. Yep. But if the fucking magnetic poles might shift and we might get hit by a giant rock from space, yeah. we might have bigger problems. Yeah. And right. we're going to be concentrating on nonsense, which is really par for the course with human beings. We're right. going to be concentrating on these things that we're, we're really not going to fix over the short term right. when something might happen that do, it, it makes all of it a moot point. This jo is what jo the doomsday people say. Were you going to say something? Did yeah, I was just going to say, like, that's the analogy is a great one that from my, my friend George Howard says, it's like we're sitting in a car arguing about what, what's, what channel the radio is tuned to, but the car's sitting on a train track. Right. right, and the train's coming eventually <laughs> because yeah. the climate, the climate change that we're going to get from yeah catastrophic impact, or any of these other uh, <sighs> events that inject kind of energy in from the exterior system. I mean, it just all of this current discussion pales into nothingness. And, and you, then there's super volcanoes too, that which too, yeah. happen all the time. Which Look would, about Yellowstone. Yellowstone's yeah. overdue. 
Yellowstone right. is. is a continent killer. Yeah. I mean, we have no safeguards in place. We, There's no... We, we're lucky that the last essentially 10,000 years, with a couple of little blips, things like Burkle Crater, it, we've had really calm, pleasant weather for most of it. I mean, that's why our civilization has risen. Because if yeah. you look at the temperature record and the swings from cold to even colder and back again, I mean, it's it's up and down. There was all sorts of nasty things happening you know, more than 10,000 years ago. And, and ever since then, it's this pretty straight line. It's the reason that we're a civilization now. And because we think in such short-term time frames, human lifetimes or, you know, even yeah. just a couple hundred years, we just ignore that stuff. But, yeah, if you extend the timeline out far enough, these things are going to happen again. And we should probably be, yeah, a bit more conscious of them. And, they, they, yeah, that's, that's the threat. Someone must know. Some, if there's enough smart people, they should be investigating this. I'm like, what does Elon know? What do other people know? Like, some people speculate that the reason for such brazen, bat, poor behavior involving spending with the government and the economy and the U.S. dollar and all these things, like that's some speculate. It's totally conspiracy that like the powers that be know something's coming, and so they're just going to keep things going until then. Uh, if, because the way things are being run does it makes no sense. Like, well, the, the World Economic Forum is taking place right now at Davos, and Klaus Schwab and George Soros just pulled out of it. They did. What do you make of that? They they went to the bunker. <laughs> yeah, they're digging oh, some pretty big holes in Colorado, and there's a lot of bunkers in New Zealand too that yeah. are owned by billionaires. So. There's big holes in Colorado. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's that's also the Cheyenne Mountain, and that's where all like the, the nuclear that. command is and stuff, and and they've they've been. Uh, from from sources unknown, I can also tell you that at some point they have. I've seen. I've eyeballed this like an uh, uh, an RFP request for proposal for people to develop uh, basically drone systems. You know that the movie uh, Prometheus where they yeah. threw the drones yeah, up yeah, and they're yeah. in that tunnels. They there was a, an RFP for people to develop tech like that because the the government was interesting. The the premise was that they wanted to be able to fight in underground cities. Fight. Yeah, like as in for the military, we want to be able to map terrain. And have these drones that can navigate in underground space without GPS and and map the environment because it's the combat situation was fighting in underground cities. Because there's going to be a small population of marauding people and there's very little resources and a small number of humans left alive and civilization will be thrown into chaos. Right. I, fun. Yeah, fun. a lot, a lot yeah. of a good time. So uh, much fun. But let's argue about what gender you should use the restroom. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's people that are exploring that premise, man. They have to be, I think. Smart yeah. people, top men, as they call yeah, yeah. it. They man. must be looking into it. And so, like I brought up on the first time I was on with you, and then Graham Hancock had a whole episode on it, uh, the Cappadocia you know, oh, underground yeah. cities. There's many of them, and a, a lot of them can support tens of thousands of people. That almost, to me, looks like a doomsday bun bunker, like a, an ark of some kind. Like, they, they could hold, uh, house farm animals. They connect to underground rivers that are 15 stories down. That This was sophisticated, and I'm like, that There's seems... underground rivers that are 15 stories down? Yeah, they dug right to them. And here's something else. They say that there's zero evidence of any type of cave-in. So whoever carved this out of the, the limestone in there... Uh, this was sophisticated. Like they did so in a way that it didn't collapse in on itself, and yet, and they also must have known that it it reached a freshwater uh, source of water down below. So as long as it doesn't get hit directly, right, which you could yeah, never yeah. predict. Yeah, you'd be screwed. Yeah, which is where I'd want to be if it happens. I'll this is wild. Have look it at land this. on me. Yeah, look at. I, there's uh, pictures that show images of it, like underground. Yeah, and, we've and, we've seen those before when right. Graham and mm -hmm. Randall were on last. We we talked about these and that they'd probably use these for short periods of time, right post impact, before they came back to the surface again. So they weathered the storm and yep. then came back above, 
and that they had gotten accustomed to this, which Might is re- just really wild, man. So this is uh, in Colorado. They're in all over the place. Jamie, so you should Google cities. the Cheyenne. Do you want to live system. though? If everything goes sideways, completely <laughs> back to caveman life, do you really want to make it through that? Yes, I've seen enough television shows yeah. and movies to know that it's a lot of fun. I'm gonna. <laughs> I, I told, <laughs> I'm a. I'm a prepper. I have my. I have my things in place to be safe. And I would, if Dude. if shit really hit the fan, I'd want to look after those who are still around. You know, like, I don't know, maybe it'd be miserable and I'd be eaten alive by cannibals. How I, many bullets do you have saved up? I won't answer that. Uh, ask me after the program. Plenty. Okay. Plenty. A, I, I was a soldier. All right, so you need thousands. Because you need it, a lot. You need yeah, a lot. Thousands. Because people don't realize, they hear that, like, oh, thousand rounds, that's scary. Like, if you're Shut just doing target practicing, yeah. you can go through a hundred rounds in minutes. Yeah. Um, so you would need a bunch, uh, and you'd want a variety of calibers, and you'd want a bunch of each one of those calibers. Because if you get to a point where you run low, you want to be able to go scavenging, and you would want a variety of weapons that can house different calibers. You'd want yeah. a shotgun, you'd want the 5.56, you'd want probably a 9mm because it's the most abundant, um, and Ruger 1022 long rifle, mm. you'd want it all. Yeah. Yeah. The people coming at you, though, too, It's the, that's the thing. Like, I've got a few acres, and you run through the scenarios and stuff like that. The people that are going to come at you from the cities and from those desolate areas, like, they're the winners of that competition. They're going to be the most savage, yeah. crazy MFs that have been eating everybody else yeah. and taking all their shit. Fun. So you just got to be... <laughs> and then how yeah. long before we start figuring out phones again after that? <laughs> How many thousands of years before? That's what's really crazy to think of. If things get knocked into the Stone Age, like if you go back to the sophistication of ancient Egypt and you think about what the civilization could have been like, I mean, you're just speculating. You're just trying to just imagine how they could have moved these 500-ton stone blocks 500 miles. You're putting all these things into your mind. And then say, how long does it take to get from that if you knock back into barbarians, how long does it take to get from that to where we are now? Well, evidence would suggest something like 6,000 years. <laughs> Which is wild. It is. You think about, yeah. like, if you think about how absolutely fucking ruthless people were 2,000 years ago, doesn't yeah. it kind of make sense yeah. that those are the ones that made it through and then it took a long time before they calmed the fuck down? Right. So if you go yeah. back to, you know, whatever it was, the, the sophistication level that people were at when they built ancient Egypt, let's just speculate that it was 20,000 years ago. Yeah. And you you think about how much they had to endure to get to that point and how much they had to... I mean, there's there's real evidence, and if you especially pay attention to the work of people like Steven Pinker, that over time there's been less violence, less, less crime, less everything. Like, mm-hmm. civilization has gotten better. We are calming down from now versus the way we were 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago. Things are moving in the correct direction. But how long does it take before you have this level of sophistication that allows you to get to the pyramids? And then we're nowhere near that now. So even on the most conservative speculation that the Great Pyramid is only 4,500 years ago, we're not even anywhere near that now. We're right. nowhere near the level of sophistication that it took them to build. And we're just guessing as to what kind of technology they yep. had available to them. 
And as you pointed out, with these vases and with just the the alignment to the constellations, the sophistication that's involved in the construction to get stones that are tons of stone that you can't even get a razor blade in between. Like, what the fuck was going on? Here's the fun thing to entertain is about moving the stone. So all that black granite that came from... um, uh, 500 miles away. Yeah, uh, uh, but the ones that came from um, the eastern part of Egypt. Oh, the Wadi Hammamit quarry that's in the east, yeah, in the mountains. in the mountains of... um, It's nowhere near the Nile. Right, and so they would have had... Yeah, the ground. You'd have to go up and down mountains to move these things that were tens of tons, Um, like like off cliffs. Uh, and, and because like the the narrative is like oh well they would have brought these stones up the Nile right well there's there's stones out there that are on the other side of the Nile in the mountains uh, so how did they bring those there's enormous th- th- stones huge enormous well there's well, thousand ton stones there is so there's a, there's evidence there's multiple uh, statues that I can show you. Um, uh, pictures of that there were single piece statues. So you have the unfinished obelisk in the quarry. That's one thousand two hundred tons. But then you have at least three or four unfi- like finished statues that were a thousand tons, single piece granite. And one of them's in a place called Tanis, which is way up in the north in the delta. That's more than a thousand miles from where that stone came from. <laughs> and then moving that thing, I mean, it's a thousand. It was around a thousand tons finished, single piece granite. So moving it, you you may be at fifteen hundred tons or more. Like moving that, there's. There's some there's a there's a quarry in Egypt I think it's called the Minya quarry which has these blocks they're not they're still attached where they've cut these big blocks out and there's like an image of what looks like a giant pharaoh that's been carved on top of it they're made from limestone now maybe they were never intended to be blocks or they were maybe now never intended to be finished but if you assume they're blocks these two blocks weigh I think it's three thousand five hundred and five thousand tons a piece based on the the density of limestone in that region like they're not they're not disconnected but that's that's the scale. We know there's objects up to like 1,200 tons, but the fact that they moved them a thousand miles, and we have examples. There's a stone called the Russian Thunderstone. Have you heard of this? No. So, like in the uh, 1700s, they took a big lump of, I think it's granite or something like that, from from Finland, and they, they shipped it to St. Petersburg, and they carved it into a statue. It's still there today. It's the Thunderstone. It's in. It's a. It's an edifice. It weighed. That's it. That's it now. Yeah, that's the finished one. This image here is the right one. Yeah. So this is how they did it in the 1700s, the Thunderstone. And they moved it around 100, 150 meters a day. It took them forever. And the only way they did this was by uh, basically sinking giant like logs into the ground to give them a, a leverage point for these capstans. And they'd move a system of rails, big steel rails with steel ball bearings uh, behind it. It weighed about 1,500 tons. And just over a period of just very slow uh, grinding and turning with capstans and pulleys and these steel tracks, they move it about 150 uh, meters a day. It took them forever. And in order to get that thing across the, the water from Finland, they had to construct a giant barge, like a huge barge. And on each side of the barge, they, they would tie up three warships just to try and keep it stable. It's about the same size, same mass as the obelisk that's sitting in this mountainous quarry in Egypt, in Aswan. It's still in the ground. It's like 1,200 tons of granite. And you're expected to believe that they somehow were going to lift this thing up out of a quarry over these like, basically big hills and mountains of granite and put it on a little ship that's narrowed in this, what they would, this, they call it the harbor there. And it's this tiny little space. I'm like, you're, you're absolutely delusional if you think this was a simple task that could be achieved by, with primitive methods 
and then ship that thing a thousand miles somewhere. It's when you speculate, when you sit around by yourself because you've thought about this a lot. How the fuck do you think they did this? Look, I just I, take a wild, wild ass guess. I think there's connections possibly to 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 gravity manipulation. I think anti gravity had to have it play a part in moving some of this stuff. I actually think there's some connections to some of the the work that's being done with this um, plasmoid implosion technology. The the stuff that Randall's been looking into that's coming back to, to to talk a little bit about the relationship and the the sacred geometry aspects of that are, the, are similar to the things that we see in some of these cultures in the past so that may potentially have something to do with the methods they, that, that were used in the past but i'm convinced it was a form of advanced technology now whether it's our form of technology because Let's face it, we can do things like that today, but it takes hydraulics and diesel powers and cranes and all that stuff. They may have had an, an entirely different avenue of, of, of tech. And that you open up into the realm of resonance and acoustics and anti-gravity. I think uh, resonance in particular might, be, might have had a, played a strong role because that's certainly a feature that you see in some of these oldest structures, whether it's an accident or not, but some of them are incredibly resonant. The Great Pyramid generates a, a tone just on its own that comes from the earth in there. Um, it generates a tone. It does. In it what de- generates way? a low tone. It's just it's basically you, you coming from the You can hear it, earth. or is it? If you're quiet enough, you can. But it's certainly been picked up in a whole number of different experiments where they're measuring uh, the tone. It does. The whole structure does generate a low tone. Um, it's an interesting thing. You, a lot of these places that typically have a connection to underground water as well. Like we know there's water beneath the Giza Plateau, places like the Coricancha in Peru, which is also a giant megalithic building. There's an underwater river near there. Uh, we always see some form of, of flowing water associated with it, whether or not that has something to do with it, I don't know. But it's it's just in that realm of, I think it's the answers lay in realms of science that are outside of our current understanding that we should be approaching with an open mind because we might ultimately learn something from it if we do. We Instead of just dismissing it, putting it in a box and said, you know what, we're, we're superior to every civilization that's lived before. Right. They're primitive. They did it with primitive methods. Right, Done. right. All things are a frequency. All things operate on resonance. Um, and by the way, a quick little bizarre similarity when you're mentioning anti-gravity, that Dr. Chan yeah. Thomas, who wrote the Adam and Eve story, he was researching anti-gravity for McDonnell Doug- Douglas back in the 60s. Mm. Listen, <laughs> so, Jamie, put that back up, please. A recent study published on Ancient Origins website claims that the ancient Egyptians benefited from the sound in the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza and relied on the discovery of a dead end in the rock inside the pyramid room as a tube of acoustic resonance that generates ultrasonic waves at a base frequency within 5 hertz. This raises the questions of the importance of ultrasound for the ancients. And can we find the use of sound waves between ancient cultures elsewhere in the world? Wow. Yeah, all the boxes too. The Serapium is an incredible site that that houses like 25 of the biggest stone boxes you'll ever see. It's this one spot and they're the biggest ones. They're like, some of them are up to like 70 tons with their lids 30 tons. And we've I've been there with some people that have been measuring like the frequency resonance range inside there. So what range are you generating standard uh, standing waves? And they all seem to have a very similar resonance tone to them. Um, so it's it's an interesting experiment. Like you can you can stand inside a water tank or a concrete room and find a resonance. But it's it's uh, it's it's interesting to go and actually analyze those aspects of these ancient structures and to speculate maybe has this got anything to do with what they were made for? Because these are giant precision made boxes made from cyanide and granite. Mm that are perfectly flat and square and they're just massively solid. 
They went to tremendous effort to, to remove imperfections from the stone. No cracks. Almost like they didn't want the damn things to shake apart or vibrate. Um, well, it's I, just the sheer scale of them. Like, oh, it, it, it flies in the face of logic. Like the really the does. actual archaeologists that want to lock this down and try to come up with some sort of a conventional reason and, you know, some sort of an explanation that we can all get behind. Oh, they used pulleys and pushed them on logs. Like, yeah. shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. Just shut the fuck up. What you're saying doesn't even make any goddamn sense. It's way more likely that there was incredibly sophisticated technology that existed, and it's way more likely, in face of the evidence of the Younger Dryas Impact Theory, yep. that that shit was wiped out. And that we're talking about a really advanced civilization that lived a long time ago that's more advanced than we are today, but moved in a different direction. Like, we moved right. in the direction of combustion engines and electronics, and, and they moved in some other direction, but achieved maybe many thousands of years more sophistication in that direction than we have with our internal combustion engines and electricity right. and yep. all the shit that we use. And it's important for people to understand that these primitive methods that are suggested and, and pushed very hard by the, quote, mainstream, they don't test any of these. Like, show me them moving, you know, a thousand tons stone on logs. Let's, right. let's see that. Uh, they don't show, they've never cut one single box, like you said, in half, or even completed one single average size box, or any box. And when yeah. I say box, I'm talking about a stone block with the primitive methods. Well, show you have shown that they've moved that one 1,000-ton stone. Right. The Thunderstone, yeah. yeah. But, but there's no, well, again, they weren't using but it's railway not traction ball bearings. Yeah. And a ball bearings. Sophisticated, it's, but yeah. also the way it's constructed, it's just a rock. It's you, not right. like this amazing obelisk that's carved out of a mountain a thousand right. miles away. It's not, there's nothing like that. Right. There's, there's also no evidence for it in dynastic Egypt. That's the other thing. They can't... The earliest parts of look. This crazy thing about it is in the old kingdom. The 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 mainstream archaeologists. There's some disagreement on this, but in general, they don't give them the, they don't grant them the ability to even quarry granite. They say that in the old kingdom they couldn't quarry granite. They made all of their granite artifacts from surface granite. It's just it's the most it's the craziest thing. No no wheel. No use of the wheel. Uh, never in the Egyptian civilization did they grant them the use of the pulley. It was it was literally um, human horsepower. Ropes, levers, and wooden sleds. That's it. The Romans came along and the Greeks and they started using pulleys and force multipliers and stuff like that. But they don't, there's no evidence for that in the dynastic Egyptian Have you ever had a conversation with all the information that you have at your disposal, like right off the top of your head? Have you ever had a conversation with a conventional archaeologist uh, that wants to argue this with you? On I mean, on email a couple of times, but not in life. What it's do they say on email? It's, it's. It's a lot of it. Is, I want to keep my job. That's what they say. <laughs> I think there's a bit of that. If you read my I textbook, know, all the shit. I shouldn't be an expert, but I, fuck you. Yeah. I have. I bought a BMW. You piece yeah. of shit. You try to well, take it from I'm me. I'm tenured. Yeah, well, I'm they tenured. Do, they say like, oh, we know how they did it because they talk about it. So, for example, with the giant statues, right? There's there's a scene on a wall. It's called the the Duty Hotep image. And it shows the Egyptians, like it's all, you see these dudes in profile. It's an Egyptian drawing, definitely dynastics made the drawing. And there's 156 dudes when you count them all up and they're pulling a statue that's tied to a, to a, to a wooden sled. Now, we know this statue, there's parts of it still exist. First, it's alabaster. It's not granite. Second, it weighs about 56 tons. That's fine. And, and you're dragging it on a wooden sled. You can't use that to explain how you move a thousand-ton statue. It's just—it's not like a sliding scale of difficulty. It's—it's it's a you know there's a, there's a curve to it. Like you can you can move 
I do grant them the ability to use primitive methods to move stuff up to like 100, 150 tonnes. But once you start getting to 400, 600, 1,000 tonnes, material failure, wood's not an issue, that literally sleds would just be crushed or driven into the ground. You know, you, you, it's, it's, there's, a, there's an absolute scale of difficulty that gets applied to these massive objects. And I also, think it's been- what are they using to cut these things out of the stone? Well, that's a whole other mystery, Is particularly in the quarry. We, we can see different technologies and tool marks. We know, and this is funny because in the New Kingdom, the 19th dynasty, there's Ramses the Great, the greatest pharaoh of all time, right? He was quarrying granite from the Middle Pyramid for his own projects. He was taking the granite casing blocks. And the way they did it and the way that they still do it to some extent is they would hammer out with a flint chisel or even with steel. You hammer away, you make a little groove in the granite. You, you smash wood into it, you make all these grooves, you wet the wood, and you split the stone, right? You eventually, you, you hammer at it with chisels, you wet the wood, all this pressure gets on it, and you, you're in, your object is to split a piece of stone, crack it off, and then I take that piece of stone. Now, it fails all the time, and you see this mark all over the place. You see it in the quarry. You can even see later examples of these chisel marks where they've gotten big chisels, and this might have even been like hundreds of years ago, or th- not Egyptian civilization, but like the, uh, the, the Persian civilization that lived there. And then at the quarry, you have these scoop marks. Like you have this whole other mm. technology that exists where it's like they've scooped away at the granite with yeah. an ice cream scoop. And it's gone, it's under, there's a place where you can what get it under a piece is? of stone. Look, they'll tell you that it's, if this skull was a, a, it's a pounding stone of dolerite about that big and they reckon they were doing this with it, which is, <laughs> it doesn't make sense at about 15 different levels that I do go through in autistic detail in one of these videos. But, you know, you, these scoop marks extend to like the underside of rocks where you, you, you're pounding up and it's just, it doesn't make sense. None of this fits uh, the evidence that gets presented. And it, it's, there's something else at work here. Like there's, there's, there's some other technology that's been used to, to remove this granite at a rapid rate. Like the scoop mark in the obelisk is it's a whole other mystery. But it's, we see it also on other bits of unfinished stone. You see scoop marks on some of the blocks on the third pyramid that are unfinished. You see them at the Assyrian, which is a massive underground granite structure that's at the Temple of Seti I with granite blocks that weigh like 90 tons. When we were in Egypt together and we're at Aswan, they actually have a, uh, <laughs> a granite block with these dolerite hammers that are, you know, round dolerite black stones that are like eight, 10 pounds a pop. And you're allowed to bang away at it. I have video of one of my videos on YouTube. It's me doing it. And if you ever take an eight to 10 pound weight and start banging across, first of all, it feels like you're going to get arthritis within a few minutes. And you see that you're only chipping away particles of dust. It is the least feasible explanation ever. And anyone that simply picks up one of these dolerite hammers and bangs away on a piece of granite themselves will see that it's nonsense. And not only that, those scoop marks that you mentioned, I don't know, Jamie, if you're able to type in um, Aswan um, unfinished uh, obelisk and you see these scoops, they're they're symmetrical it doesn't make sense that that would be done by handwork see that's what we're talking about and that's in yeah. rose granite that's as hard oh. as a rock so to speak I'm, hard, I'm having a hard time understanding how that's even possible it looks like it was sandblasted if, if you uh, it's, know the it's something that's scooping the granite out. you actually have these test pits as well like these pits that go down like 15 Look 20 feet size that obelisk. you have these holes around the side of it where, where they call them test pits because what you want to do and this is gets back to my comment about the ability to quarry granite is the quality of granite that it takes to take an object like that or like um, – it's actually from a guy that went on my tour. Um, that, 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 uh, the quality of granite that it takes to make large objects like that and a lot of the quality of granite that we see on the Giza Plateau, it's, you're talking 30 feet. There's a test pit. 
Yeah, that's a test pit. They're like 30 feet inside a granite mountain. None of that, you don't get this quality of granite at the surface level uh, with, with just granite pieces lying around. And, and you can go to Giza today, 4th Dynasty, and look at the blocks of granite that were hanging off the, the Valley Temple or the, the Pyramid Temple, and they're huge crystal occlusions in them. Like, this stuff came from the core of granite mountains. You, you can't say that the Dynastic and the Old Kingdom guys didn't have the ability to quarry granite. Maybe they didn't, but whoever made those granite blocks sure as hell did because so, that's where it comes from. Real quick, this image right down here, that black yeah. rock is the dolerite hammer. Yeah. And when Ben was just mentioning from underneath these scoop marks, so they wanted to claim that that's how they did it, that they were banging away with this rock well, basically upwards. Well, yeah, you actually get there's a consistent line. So on the wall behind where we're standing, it's like 20 feet high, and you'll see a horizontal ridge that runs all the way down that line underneath and then up underneath the other piece of rock it's like this What's consistent this groove this is exactly what i did he's banging on it with a with a dollar right pounder <laughs> nothing and, about this is fun and is this are they trying to say that this is how they did it is that what Dude, this, yes, they this make you watch a video they, joe they indoctrinate you at this site it's one that's the one site where they sit you down and make you watch a video <laughs> before you're allowed to go out and look at the site like, really? 10, 12 minutes yeah, yeah you gotta they sit make there you watch it yeah, yeah. There's a video that says, this is how they did it. It was incredible. And They're insistent. And, and what's wild is that if you just do it, when you do something yourself, you realize just like that's not, I don't know how they did it, but it wasn't this. That There we go. I filmed this. These are wonderful gentlemen that traveled with us to, to Egypt back in uh, November. Well, a couple and, of engineers there. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So it is possible to do that with the stone, yeah, yeah. but not feasible and certainly not on the scale of those obelisks. So there's... There's, that's right. There's been some tests that have been done, and I, I get into it. And I think it's something like uh, I got to say about seventy cubic centimeters or something like that that you can remove with that method over a, a solid hour. And I think it's it's either fifty or seventy, but it's put it this way: it's three quarters the volume of a golf ball, or two two fifths the volume of a chicken egg. Like that's how much material you can remove in an hour by just nonstop pounding of granite mm. dust. That's the best estimate we have. So. What you got to imagine is that entire trench around this obelisk, bear in mind the trench is only two-thirds as deep as it needs to be to remove a square section, but if you filled that whole thing up with golf balls and added another 25%, that's the number of hours it might take to do Go with back that, to that past image. With that method. Is, that, is the idea that that obelisk was left there because of the crack? Yeah. It developed, supposedly what they tell you is it developed a crack across the center and they left it there. Now, I think the crack could be the result of later quarrying attempts. When they found this, it was utterly buried. Like it was, there was one small section of it poking out, and the rest of it at the bottom here was like under nine meters of rubble, and there were other big quarried blocks. Mm. I actually think this could have been here long. I think the Egyptians were using the quarry, but I think this object could have been. They just poured stuff onto it. It just was at the oldest part of the quarry. And what's the wackiest explanation for these scoop marks? Wackiest? I mean, yeah, like the like, not worried whatsoever about people's <laughs> interpretation of you and your ability to discern reality. Like what? It's 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 like it's, it's yeah, some sort of molecular softening tool that just comes in and scoops it out. Like somehow it gets molecular between the molecular softening tool. Like like can soften the stone, can change the molecular bonds beneath the stone because it's made up of all these granites, like a composite material made up of a bunch of different types of you know hornblende and and crystal quartz and. Uh, a bunch of stuff like that, and then just being able to somehow scoop it out. I don't know. It's it's as if it looks that way when you look at it. Like you've got to think it's either some sonic tool, there's something going on that is enabling them to scoop that material out of there in an effortless fashion. These scoops in places, it's almost as if 
they articulate like we see in places a recent observation we made it's a, they're not just straight down but they bend so imagine a backhoe arm it's digging mm, here and yeah. it does this and you see that in some of these scoops they literally there's an articulation to these lines so maybe there was a tool that was anchored and it almost looks like it had a very flexible tip but it was some rotating tool that just chewed out this stone and that's where chris dunn goes with it is um you know there, there may be a um uh, some sort of rotating tool the interesting thing about the quarry also is that there is, in an area, there is uh, drawings on the wall of the quarry where there's all these scoop marks of these ostriches, and it matches pre-dynastic drawings. So it's almost as if there were people in that quarry making paintings on pre on earlier done scoop marks before the dynastic Egyptian even start uh, civilization even started. So it's I think I think that scoop mark stuff is absolutely a, a part of this ancient lost civilization there was some and it's one of their working areas there's a tremendous value in seeing unfinished work because we get to have a little bit of insight into you know how did this tool potentially function yeah. what how did it work like but you have to have an open mind to kind of look at it that way um we see the same thing on a couple of objects that are unfinished it's there's some incontrovertible evidence for machining and things like that uh in other it's, objects it hurts my brain yeah. it really does because you start thinking like what what happened like what are we talking about like what 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 kind of technology was available then like yeah. when you think about uh, a completely different branch of technology that was achieved twenty thousand years ago or whatever it was mm -hmm. you 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 really there's nothing there like you're just spinning your wheels just guessing right it's speaking That's of right. technology uh Jamie, you should Google the Khufu ship because the largest vessel that's ever been found from ancient oh, yeah. Egypt is a canoe, basically. And now, <laughs> and there's no other depictions. Now, I'm not suggesting that no one's suggesting that this boat was used to tug and and, and move around large stones. But it's worth mentioning that of all the you know uh, descriptions uh, that you see uh, or inscriptions, excuse me, this 140 foot long boat is the largest boat ever found. That's a bullshit boat too. Yeah, by it's, the a, way. it's yeah. a. I've said it before, and I feel bad, but it's a shit box in look comparison. At it. it is a total shit box. <laughs> it's such a bad design. Like, look at how low it, it has. Yeah, like very line. little depth in the water, yeah. so it will have very little stability. And then it's also top heavy. It's like driving around in a fucking sprinter van on a racetrack. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Any, top right over. Yeah, any wave at all is tipping that bullshit boat right. over. Yeah. And they found this right next to the pyramid, by the way. Yeah. So which it, is pretty fun. And you get the same thing here. It's like there is a wall scene at Saqqara where they show a very small column on a boat. Like it's this it's a column that barely comes up to a guy's knees and it's on a boat. It shows them shipping a small column and they go, Click See, on that one that's by your cursor, Jamie. No, the one above it to the left. To the left, right there. Above it and to the left. You gotta use the laser pointer. That one, yeah, should have. <laughs> Imagine taking your kids on that. You hey, wouldn't. kids, It'd be we're, we're gonna we're gonna get go out into the ocean on that. <laughs> it's like a, uh, I don't know if that's an ocean boat. Your that's kids would be taken for whatever. Yeah. Lay, even a yeah. river. Fuck yeah. out of here. Yeah, that's for like Everyone's a pond. Everyone's gonna die. That's we don't for a even, pond. <laughs> yeah, that's a swan even, boat. Is there any evidence it's they even have life. life preservers back then? <laughs> Did they have a vest? It didn't matter because they had the hippos and crocodiles to take care of. Oh, it. Jesus. <laughs> hippos and crocs. I forgot about those. But that's the point. The point that, that's significant in this is that that is the largest boat that they've ever found. And my point is, is that like if they're going to claim that they were moving, you know, 100 ton stone blocks uh, on barges, I just want to uh, yeah. iterate that did they, they've never found one. And there was no inscription that shows anything large enough that would have done it. Right. Right, and there's also no inscriptions at all of the constructions of the pyramids. 
That's right. right. Zero. Yeah. Well, so th- there is, there is, but not the big ones. There's a there's a there's a tomb of the nobles that's in a over near uh, on the uh, west bank of the Nile at Luxor, but it shows them literally making mud bricks and building a mud brick pyramid. Mud, mud oh. bricks, which is all they made a lot of mud brick pyramids. Yeah, but later. <laughs> Well, there was one person at one point in time that was speculating that the pyramids were made with concrete, and that they uh, had yeah. devised some sort of a way to make concrete out of granite. The geopolymer theory drives, yeah. drives me nuts on a daily basis. But it seems like total horseshit. It is. Yeah. Was it it is. There's, look, there's, it's an Especially interesting- Especially since they know the quarries. The quarries right there. There's literally holes in the ground that match the ho- like the objects that we have. There's Behind the middle pyramid is- the middle pyramid, they cut it out of a hill. Like, they cut it into a hill. It's crazy. Like, they had to cut down 40 feet at the back and, and put these massive tiles into the front, and they plopped a pyramid on it for some reason. But at the back in that in that area where they cut the wall down, it's a quarry. You literally see where there's – that's where they cut big blocks of limestone off. The, the, the little stubs from the blocks are still there. I mean – and yeah, not, we have quarries. And not only that, all the blocks are different sizes. They're not one-offs. Yeah. So if you were literally filling in geopolymer, you would have a lot that are the same size. You would have right. a, you know, you'd That's be filling it. it. And so since they're all different sizes, it's like that doesn't, that's not what you would have if they were filling. What is the speculation as to why they're different sizes? Like, why why did they do that? Like, one of the that's cool things really that you question. showed in one of your videos, which shows the similarities between the construction methods of ancient Japan and Peru mm-hmm. and Egypt, is that so many of these stones, they're like these odd shapes that, like jigsaw puzzles, yeah. and they're fit in perfectly. Polygonal. Yeah. Yeah, they fit in. Oh, don't worry. That's just a coincidence. <laughs> these, these polygonal walls that are found in multiple continents around the world, the fact that there's pyramids in five continents around the world, there's, it's, oh, yeah. it's, they say it's a coincidence. This is a natural uh, progression of civilization that a pyramid's like, oh, it's come on, kids with blocks will make a pyramid. They'll Makes put, sense, which right? is why we make them today. Right. But if you look at comparisons of the Indonesia <laughs> right. pyramids and the ones in Central America and Mexico, <laughs> like they have similarities of like the strip steps that go up the middle of it. I, yeah. I, I use the analogy of like skyscrapers, that we have skyscrapers in any major city around the world, and they're all the same based on that, yeah, you have steel and concrete and glass, but they're all different. You'd have a different architect here and they look a little different, but it's still the same thing. But is it really feasible to say, or is it a coincidence that they just happen to start building pyramids on multiple continents around the world, or these polygonal walls that are, whether it's from Peru, Peru Egypt, places in Italy, That's, Greece? There's a there's a pyramid in Greece. I don't know if you saw that in the video. Yeah, let's look, look pull up your video. Tell Jamie what that video is, just so we can see some of the images that compare these polygonal walls. Yeah. If it's, I was Elon Musk, you know what I would do? I'd, I'd hire someone to make a pyramid. I'm like, let me see yeah. if you can do Build it. Build one. Yeah. Who's the best yeah. motherfuckers Hell around? Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna throw I'd a billion dollars at this project. I bought Twitter for forty four. Yeah, yeah, might as well put it. a billion into it. Let's let's yeah. make me a pyramid, bitch. It's got yeah. to do it. It's got to t- make it as accurate as the yeah. as the. Or the I want my fucking is. money back. Yeah. Shit better line up. Yeah. I think it'd be a wonderful. Oh, by the way, that Joe tweeted it this morning, so it'll be the first yes. uh, one they tweeted. Makes it easy to find. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was tweeting it when I was watching. I was like, people need to watch this. This is I, nuts. Yeah. I appreciate that. And um, uh, what was I going to say? I had something. South American polygonal walls. <laughs> well. I mean, it's it's literally the most difficult way to do it. That's the crazy right. thing. It's like yeah. this is not how you solve. The building a wall problem. Like if, right. if you say they got to it for a different, just independently, like making these complex polygonal walls, that's not how you solve Is that problem. Is there any speculation to what the advantage of polygonal well, walls would earthquakes. be? Well, earthquakes. they say that it's it's definitely true. Like, so yes, you, you don't have a single line of vector of force, so it won't tip over. But this is where I get crazy about the things like the Giza Plateau. You have both. You have polygonal walls that are 
made like that at Giza from the fourth dynasty. And then you also have much more regular construction from smaller limestone blocks also at the fourth dynasty that at Giza that are still standing. It's like they've all been through earthquakes. Both types are still here. I mean, right. it's difficult to say that, oh, they just made it that way to make it earthquake proof. I'm like, half the shit here is still standing up. Like it went through earthquakes. It's so fine. here you see one from Egypt, one from, uh, go back, one from Mexico, Mexico Cambodia. and one from Cambodia. Cambodia. And what is the explanation for the ones in Cambodia? Do they know who built those and why? That's a good question. I'd they, have to refresh my notes on that. They go more modern civil, like more modern uh, ancient cultures, I guess. Nothing vast. They're like fifteen hundred years old. They're not supposed yeah. to be forty five hundred years old or something like right. that. And the re- reason why this is significant is because if the Great Pyramid is forty five hundred years old, my argument is that there are connections across the oceans that are not supposed to exist. Right. Because according to everything, they're adamant it wasn't until Christopher Columbus fourteen ninety two sailed the ocean blue. But yet there's evidence that goes back more than a thousand years prior that suggests. Just press play, Jamie. Just press play so we could see some. Of these images because they go pretty rapid fire and it's really really well done this video and um, I'm glad that you gave credit to all the people that helped you out in that too yeah there's the polygonal walls there's these this nub phenomena uh, yeah. there's yeah. these similarities across numerous continents yeah it's really wild stuff because it's so it's so obvious that somehow or another these these people had to be in communication with each other or sharing information or had carried information from other places yeah. right you know what while we're this is the same like video this. that has like the that, uh, yeah. egypt japan uh sarcophagus yeah. similarity yeah i don't remember if it's earlier in the video or later in the video but look if you that. skip around yeah look at that's that that's and what part of man. greece is that it's not Athens. Um, I'd have to double check. It's, I made this video like three years ago, so I'd have to double check. I haven't looked at this in a while, to be honest with you. Well, there's also the weirdness of the, the uh, Acropolis and the Parthenon, right? Mm. Like that the Acropolis was built on the Parthenon, but like what? Who built that? Yeah. They don't even talk about it. Yeah. Right. Reminds me Look of, at that fucking... That's Sexe Waman. Yeah, this wild. is Peru. That's that's in the streets of Cusco. Is it really Sexe Waman? That sounds like a hot <laughs> chick. Sexy woman. Sexe Huaman. Yeah, it's Italy. Look at they have them in Italy too. Wow. Yep, these polygonal walls. Yeah. You can find them in Japan, Everywhere. Easter Peru. Island. Yeah, Easter Island. And who do they think built these in in Italy? A lot of it's attributed to the Romans in this in the same way that you know Baalbek is all attributed to the Romans, right? Um, which doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. not the foundation of it. The the, the Trilithon stones. Yeah, Trilithon stones. Yeah, Incredible. eight nine hundred tons. Yeah, three of them nine hundred tons each, and then look the, at that. It's just so strange because it's such a strange way of constructing things, and yet it exists all over the world. Right. It's actually the most difficult way to construct something. And we're looking at this after thousands of years. Right. Who knows how many earthquakes, weather erosion. Look how good the Peru one is, though. That's amazing. Some of the details in these are astonishing. These little tiny notches, that, but it's just matched throughout. It's matched on all the sides of the stone, and, it, mm. and it's not just surface level either. It goes all the way through the... the the mating surfaces of the stones. Mm. This is the Valley Temple in Egypt. God, it's so wild. That's the Assyrian. <laughs> I can just tell by like. Look at the Japan one. Now most people aren't even aware of this no. one from Japan. Yeah. And like, what, what, when do they date these Japanese structures? I'd have to double check. I know they're accredited to be in some castle by some guy. Um, yep. I'd have to double check, but I'm going to go ahead and guess a thousand to fifteen hundred years. Go back just a little bit, Jamie. But Look, I think they're probably older. The Japan but. one, not this one. Right there. Bam, stop. Look at the size of that one stone. 
Yeah, probably 500 tons, I bet. 400 probably. Holy shit. Mm. Yeah, around there. Just eyeballing it. (laughs) I've been doing this long enough. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, look at that gentleman who's standing there. Depends how deep it is, I guess. But yeah, it's it's a giant piece of stone. Imagine him pushing that thing. Logs all together now. Lift it up. Fucking put and it's above the other ones. Yeah. Right. It's not even the one that's on the bottom. Yeah. It's how. Let's see that sarcophagus compared to the one in Egypt. I'm not sure what part of the video. Look at the one above it and to the right. Oh yeah. Yeah. God. Oh, I should use this. Look at that one there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That one and that one. Immense. I mean, it's just so incredible. Keep going a little bit more. It's not. Can't be too far off. Uh, a little bit. It's You're worth seeing. Too far, I think. Pro- yeah, but I think. Because when people are about to see this, it is a it is such an unbelievable similarity. And again, ancient Japan and ancient Egypt are not supposed to have any type of contact whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. No. It the may have been early are, in the video. I'm not keep, sure. Keep going. I may have been one of the is. earlier part. I don't believe so. I watched it today. I think it was later. Maybe have a search for it, like Japanese yeah. sarcophagus lid or something. I forget the name of the place. You need to have those little things where you can just jump to it. Yeah. Some people do that in those videos. That's oh, this is a question. Why does he have a fucking watch on? Go back. <laughs> Isn't that a watch? Uh, how dare you? That's right? a consp- impossible. Stop. What, is, what the fuck is that? It's, it's jewelry. It looks like a watch. I mean, it maybe does. it's jewelry, but it, it's literally on his wrist, and it's a circle, and it's with a band. Right. I um, mean, yeah. what is that? Is that a sundial? What I the saw, fuck is on his wrist? It's a mini, mini, mini antikythera mechanism. I mean, it's like look, small, it looks like, like my watch. Mini. It does. It does. That's yeah. crazy. Uh, a lot of people, I saw many, many comments of people saying the same thing. That's a watch. But, you know, of course, the explanation is like, of course not. Just jewelry. Nothing to see here. But it does look like it, doesn't it? Well, it just makes sense that if they developed weapons and they developed clothing and they developed shelters and then they figured out mechanisms... If they had the sophistication to be able to construct these buildings, why wouldn't they have the sophistication to be able to construct a watch? Right. Um, An automatic watch. If you want to talk about ancient technology, speaking of this, like on the left, that trident, uh, many accredited it to being originated from the Vajra. And did you see Elon Musk's uh, bedside table picture that he put on Twitter? Yes, I did, but I don't remember a trident. Was there a trident in there? Look, the Vajra, which is— comes from the trident or the trident comes from that he had that in the lower left corner of the picture if you go to if you were to google Elon Musk bedside photo lower left corner that is the symbol that comes from ancient Hindu that is supposed to be the most powerful uh, thing in the entire universe hmm this is a staged photo I don't know if Elon Musk is trolling or if he's literally because he's been talking about that he thinks that his life could be in jeopardy he's going against the you know the grain and and, and all this freedom of speech stuff and I don't see bottom left corner yeah. yeah, click on that. The Buddhism ritual object, if you Google the Vajra, V-A-J-R-A, that would it's an ancient symbol. Like it, how he has a cosplay gun and <laughs> caffeine-free Diet Coke. I don't know what that's Jesus. about. He needs to get rid of those Diet Cokes. Oh. Well, he likes it. That's yeah. those. Uh, no. Um, no? <laughs> awful. Why? You, t- you like that? What do you mean? Like Diet Coke? Yeah. I don't mind Diet Coke. Yeah? You drink yeah. Diet Coke? I've drank Diet Coke you're before. Into that, you're into that artificial sweetener scene? 
Ask I'm not Martin. worried about it. No. Yeah. no. When I, I talk to nutritionists, I don't yeah. I don't think it's really that big of a okay. deal. Depends on how much you're drinking. I mean, it right. looks like Elon's drinking he's a shit ton of it. Because <laughs> he's got like the, the stains on the uh, on the thing. But all right, yeah, so he's the bottom. four of them. And they're caffeine free, which is weird. Yeah. So between that George Washington pistol and the fact. This is a That's staged not a George photo. Washington pistol. That's a cosplay, cosplay pistol from a video game. No, the one above it. The musket. Oh, oh, the one above it. This is a staged photo. So the fact that he has that Vajra in the lower left corner, Mm -hmm. I wonder, this is conspiracy, which I'm all into, is he essentially sending a shot off the bow to his, the people who he thinks are going after him, which is that I have knowledge of something involving, because here we are, like we have Randall Carlson, you're bringing back on, there's all this speculation that there has been a limitless energy device that has come from the ancients that has been essentially redeveloped. And then in a short period of time, you have Elon Musk posting this picture while he's also talking about that he believes that his life could be at jeopardy. He's taking certain security precautions. This is a staged photo. It makes no sense. November 28th, 2022, my bedside table. This is at 3.48 a.m. What is this? Either he's trolling, and maybe, or is he trying... Why would he put that Vajra right in the lower left corner, the symbol that means the that other people can uh, correlate with a limitless free energy technology that may have once existed, and that's where the Trident comes from? So I don't understand how did, was the Vajra, how did it supposedly work? Oh, that is a whole other thing. Like, I that I couldn't explain, but it's... But essent- it's supposed to rec- represent limitless energy? Some have said that. it's supposed. To, what it does represent in Hindu culture is the most powerful weapon and device of the universe. Do you know like any more about it, Ben? Are you a bunch of string? I no, I don't. I know this is, this is the other stuff, the handbag. I was going to ask, can I oh, go yeah. pee while you guys talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to pee, pee too, actually. All right, let's pause. Really bad. You guys go pee. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll be right back. And we're back. Are we back? We're back. That was excellent. All right. So where were we? Uh, history's bullshit. It's right. Yeah. And Elon Musk has all the secrets. <laughs> he's got. He's got something. He's got some secrets. Yeah, I mean, he obviously felt very compelled to buy Twitter. I mean, it's not like it's not. I mean, forty-four billion dollars is a lot of goddamn money, and he overpaid for it. But he felt like there's a need to have some sort of an uncensored distribution of information, or at least ungovernment censored. This is why I'm such a fan of him. Anyone at this point in time that's an advocate for free speech, I'm on your side. This is we live in a wild time. We anyone with their eyes that's paying attention sees that there's people controlling information. And throughout history, this has been proven time and time again to lead to tyranny when you stop people from sharing things. Uh, you know, so I'm 38 years old, and growing up, I remember back in the day, people could say whatever they wanted. Free speech was real. You're allowed to have it. Worst case scenario, people ridicule you, and everything was fine. And now we're entering this age where things are being called dangerous, like ancient apocalypse. That's dangerous misinformation. It's like, no, the only thing dangerous is stopping people from having a voice. Well, also, when you start attributing, when you, you, you put words on that, like racism, and you start putting those kind of accusations towards some, if you watch that that special the the series and you you say oh this is racist you're a fucking idiot <laughs> i mean it's really that simple yeah. or you're a dangerous asshole who wants to change the reality of what this guy's actually talking about right Throughout history, anyone, yeah. whether it's the Nazis, the Stalinists, the Maoists, and everyone else, anyone that's ever censored people, the people who censor other people, they're always the bad guys, historically. Always. 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 100% always. of the time. And it always leads into a bunch of people getting hurt 
and it's like rinse cycle repeat throughout history. This is but one. This th- is one of the first times where educated progressive people who think of themselves as compassionate are advocating censorship, yeah. which is so bizarre. It's the same people, actually, same people, same argument that they made three years ago against him. The Journal of um, American Archaeology or the Society of American Archaeology dedicated 27 pages in a journal three years ago to attacking Hancock for his book America Before. Yeah. Same same accusations, same language, same people. And then what happened? I think what happened was when, you know, his show comes out and it's got, you know, you're there. I think Jordan Peterson was in one of the clips. And it just, I think it triggered some of the more maybe left-leaning publications to go and look for what's the what are the arguments being made against this and then that whole that whole the whole all those talking points get amplified and boosted and it becomes this much bigger thing but well they're just terrified people. that they're losing control of the narrative i mean that's yeah. that's the big part of it and that's the same problem they have with this podcast same problem they have with a lot of things that can become very popular that they can't control right. they just hate the fact that people are just able to discuss things openly and freely without them being in control of it and getting all their greasy fucking fingers all over stuff right it's unfortunate in more ways than one because historically it always leads to like a, a terrible abyss of oblivion and 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 they never stop that's the thing that once they start going after tyrannical control historically it seems like it just never ever stops until someone stops them yeah which is scary it is it is yeah. scary um but the reality is that I look at this topic, you know, there's a niche community they're into the ancients. And whether it's archaeologists that disagree with everything we just said or other people that agree with everything Graham Hancock says, I, this is a win-win for everybody. I think this is an opportunity for people to unite under a common interest and then start exploring these topics. For example, if I had them, if I had won the, the lottery, I would have, you know, hired a bunch of archaeologists that are the biggest naysayers of anything that that's alternative, and be like, hey, like here's a little, here's a salary. Let's let's get some blocks and let's start cutting this stuff and moving it and just experiment. And it's a win-win for everybody. We'll learn something. They wouldn't new. engage. They wouldn't engage with you. I mean, that's one of the problems that. Uh, Graham has with his detractors. They say they'll debate him, but then when he offers them to debate him, they scurry away and hide. Right. Because I think they all kind of know, and I don't think they're necessary anymore. Thanks to people like you guys who have really just examined all of the actual evidence without any biases or any sort of ulterior motive and any narrative that you're trying to promote. You're just looking at it going, what is this? This is wild stuff. And Thank you. Because of the fact that you guys exist on these platforms like YouTube, where you can get millions and millions of views, I mean, there are no mainstream archaeologists that are getting millions of views on their stuff. It's just that's it, why they're better, and envious, and drive, jealous. Yeah. And it does the, drive them crazy. The, they actually talk about it in some of these articles. It should. They yeah. suck. They yeah. it, this you guys is, suck at <laughs> you suck at distribution of information, and yeah. you're ignoring the most interesting stuff. Yeah. You know when when you're 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 looking at the evidence of Atlantis, or if you're looking at these similar construction methods that exist all over the world, like how what is, what, what what the fuck is the real truth here? This is what's so interesting. So a lot of people criticize us or Graham Hancock, like you're not archaeologists, you're not historians, you can't be trusted. But I'm like. Having outside eyes come in is so important. Let me give you a quick little example I I shared with Ben the other day. So I came from Target. I was investigating fraud with them, busting employees that stole from the company. And there was a story that one of the the executives spoke in front of us when I was an intern. And at that time, this is like 2013, uh, Walmart was amping up their online presence to compete with Amazon. And as the story goes, they hired some executive from Pepsi. Pepsi is far more than a soda company. It is a distributor, if it's anything. They move product from point A to point B. 
And when this, as the story goes, this executive came in and on day one saw something, some opportunity for improvement that made significant changes with uh, Walmart's ability to compete with Amazon and their online presence. And it's because when you have other people coming in from outside the box, whether it's Ben coming from the tech industry and having patents with HP, should I drop <laughs> like some pretty sure. cool stuff? Uh, you know, here I was a number of years ago watching Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson on the Joe Rogan podcast. Um, and I remember like going down the rabbit hole seeing like, okay, let me let me see if there's some truth to these these uh, alternative theories involving bronze chisels. Is this feasible? Is it not? And so I'm convinced that any reasonably intelligent person that simply looks at all points on any side of it can see like, okay, you know, there is something here. There is a mystery here. And going back to Graham Hancock and Ancient Apocalypse, with all the criticism he's getting, I don't hear anybody advocating for exploring the Bimini Road. I don't hear anyone asking to excavate the 25,000-year-old chamber uh, in, in Indonesia. I don't yeah. hear anyone talking about anything in the show well, at here's all. The, here's what's really cool. No one's paying attention to this archaeologist. There's so many more people that are watching the show. Millions of people yeah. are watching the show. And, like, how many thousands of people have heard the arguments these archaeologists are having? It's, it's, it's a blip. It's, right. it's literally like they're, like, yelling into the abyss, yeah. and no one's listening to them. Yeah. yeah. The, it, the nature of the discourse has changed in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, that's— It has. I mean, just to, having a fucking—look— uh, Human beings have accumulated knowledge and information over time, and the idea that there's gatekeepers to knowledge and information, that they have to come from these accredited universities, which are now being widely discredited because of all their wacky social ideas yeah. and all mm -hmm. the crazy shit that people – it's not necessary. There's just information, and the, right. un, the what's, what's happening right now with the internet is that you're – it's over – the the actual amount of information is so overwhelming. The idea that one group controls the access to information or what is legitimate about that, inf that information, it's not true anymore because there's so many like random people that are experts and that have yep. like accumulated vast amounts of data and like you that you could just pull it off the top of your head. You not even have any fucking notes you're drawing from <laughs> and you're talking about all this different stuff. I mean, how many archaeologists can do that? It's like right. and how many archaeologists can do it about these very specific aspects of this stuff, which is so confusing and is not being discussed in the mainstream. Right. right. I am optimistic that I see comments on my channel, and you get it as well. There's people saying, I'm going to go study archaeology so I can explore these alternative well, topics. Yeah. I think there's going to be I'm a new sure generation. I'm sure there's a lot of that. I'm I've, sure I've, there is. I've been contacted by students, people that I think what's happening is is that they're being, because this stuff is out there and it's it's becoming more mainstream, they're being forced to deal with the arguments that are being raised by guys like Graham. Like you just yeah. you have to go and account for the evidence. You can't just dismiss it, which is kind of the prior generation of the, the old guys and the old guard now. That's a lot of the approach they've taken. But I, I'm I'm hopeful also that yeah, that because some of these students have said that who will be the establishment academics of the of the of the future and potentially also in charge of the textbooks and whatever the official yeah, the story old guard even means. Will die off. They will. That's they, Planck's. That's really how it is with everything. Planck's, yeah, science yeah. advances one funeral at a time. It's, yeah, it, it, isn't that it crazy? It's sad. Yeah. Um, it's not, though. It's kind of fun. <laughs> it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it's gotta, like, it's it's really amazing. It's amazing that there's, 
access to people like you now that you guys have these platforms like YouTube where you can just put these videos out and your videos have fucking millions of views and so do yours. It's amazing. It's really yeah. cool. I'm very really grateful. Cool. And I want to yeah. give a plug real quick uh, to Rumble. I've been working with Rumble. I've asked anyone who's following me, go follow me on Rumble. I've been working and talking to their their team over there. And these people are serious about promoting free speech and and having alternatives that are being suppressed elsewhere on their platform. And so I am about free speech. I don't care if people disagree with someone, that's fantastic, yeah. but don't censor people. So all that said, YouTube's been very good to me and I wanna be on there forever. Um, but hey, I'll go, I need to diversify and I encourage anyone that's into my work to follow me there. Ben, you're on there as well, I am right? on Rumble as well, yep. Yeah, no, yep. I think it's fantastic that Rumble exists. I mean, the Russell Brand is over there now, and, yep. you know, yeah. there's, there's just so many journalists who've started to do stuff over there. It's great. Yeah, right. I love Cause, it. Because I can channel Adam Curry for a minute and talk about when you talk about the internet and access to information outside of establishments, one mm -hmm. of the dangers I do see in it is the fact that we now, the internet kind of gets distilled down to these portals. Yeah. Everyone looks at it through a portal, whether that's a Google search or a Facebook or a right. big social media engine. You could set up your own website outside of that, but the trick is how are people going to see it and go and look at it. So I do see there are some efforts and I came from that background. You hinted at it. I've worked in data center and cloud and uh, all of that for a long time, and it's just like this: that that control of that of that information is eventually going to come down to the stuff we're seeing with the Twitter files now, where it's like, hey, we need to deamplify these things. The Twitter Be files are wild; they, they are unbelievably wild. It's, it's wild. wild. Yeah. the stuff that Schellenberger's released and Matt yeah. Taibbi and all these yep. different people that have gone over and Barry Weiss gone over this data and like crazy. The, it's the government has had their fucking greasy fingers in all aspects of it. Yep. What have the conspiracies yep. been wrong about in the last few years? Every well that was Elon was joking around about that on one of the podcasts that he was on where he's like every single one of them yeah. was right. right. Every what? single conspiracy theory about shadow banning, about, yep. you know, lying about information, all of it. It's yep. got to the point about now. 6 months is a difference. Yeah. <laughs> It's at the point now you can you can figure out so quickly on who is not doing any research whatsoever. And this will sound crass, but I'm just going to say it because I know it's the truth. Most people are getting their news and information while they're sitting on the toilet, scrolling through social media and just scanning headlines. Yes. And that's it. And Including now me. <laughs> <laughs> My wife always accuses me of that because I'll send her something. She goes, did you read it? I go, no, you read it. I sent you the, the headlines. Do you not see the headlines? The headlines, yeah. terrifying. <laughs> read that. Tell me what happens. Yeah. It's at the point now people have to start, you know, this is what you do. Like I remember during, I hate to bring it up, but the COVID stuff. And I remember watching every, when it was first kicking off and they were doing the White House press conferences every single day. And I was listening to every single one of them. Yeah. And I started to see extremely quickly that all these, Trump would say something and then all these headlines would show up minutes later and contradict what he was saying. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Everyone's going to see very quickly that like, you know, the mainstream with their little headlines are so inaccurate. That's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. In fact, what it showed me is that most people are getting all their information from mainstream headlines. Yeah. Well, they counted on that, right? I mean, when uh, CNN was going after me for taking horse dewormer, they were, <laughs> they were counting on this idea that they had this control of the narrative. But they didn't understand that I had already achieved like an escape velocity by that time yeah. where yeah. I had 10 times as many people as them. So right. I was like, what the fuck are these people doing? And then it just discredited them further. Right. And, and literally was, was doing the opposite they would hope it, it was doing. Right. It's false. Well, it's because it's there's a difference between true and false, right and wrong, good versus evil. I genuinely believe this. And truth always comes out. People, people can be had. It's easy to lie. 
uh, and, and, and fool people. But if you continue to lie, that one lie creates five more, and those five lies create 25. And then before you know it, it's out of control, and you can't keep up with it. Yeah, and but that- counter to that is the Soviet Union or what's currently Russia right now. If you have control of the narrative, you can hold on to that control for a yeah. long fucking time. And this yeah. is why Elon is so dangerous to the, to the establishment. Because all of a sudden, you have one major platform that's not controlled by the government. Yep. In fact, when Joe Biden was tweeting shit that's inaccurate, Twitter was fact-checking him. Like, right. actually, that's not true at all. This is the, what you said about the economy is bullshit. Yep. And this, and like, wah! And then just, <laughs> the government's deleting tweets, which is crazy to see. It's disturbing. Let me, let's yeah. give Elon Musk a shout-out. The best thing I've ever done was pay my $8, and now it's $11 a month for my blue check mark <laughs> on Twitter. I've exploded on there since. I'm getting far more uh, visibility. Best move ever. Freedom of speech. Thank you, Elon. I will yes. gladly, gladly send you another $11 next month. Well, and I when pay he more. <laughs> even started talking about buying Twitter, just in the process of that, I think they must have released a bunch of shadow bans. And my shit went up 900,000 Twitter subscribers or Twitter followers wow. in like a couple of weeks. Wow. I was like, this is nuts. Yeah. And now it goes up organically. I'm like, oh, this is what it's... Normal. Yeah, it's normal. This is like what it's supposed to be. But during the time, I was dangerous. Yeah. Dangerous. (laughs) And then... You gotta wrap me. Hold him down. He's dangerous. Who allowed this? The funniest yeah, yeah. part is all those people that drop five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, fifteen thousand dollars. I've even heard of numbers of twenty thousand dollars that people paid for a blue check mark just a few years yeah. ago. Really? So th- yeah, people were buying their way in. People they were, were doing bribing the, people. Yeah, they, who were they bribing? The people that work there. They're making no. they're making money on the side. The same thing was really? going down at Instagram, and then apparently Zuckerberg, um, uh, he shut that down. Which, by the way, why? I don't care about social media, but that I don't have a blue check mark on Instagram, and I don't know what it's going to take to get one because this would allow me to DM people. Yeah, yeah. Contact Zuck. <laughs> Zuck. Yeah, he's yeah. Maybe here. he can get me off the shadow ban list too. There's something going on. Like I used to get way more subscribers per day. Like something happened like a year and a half ago. It happened to me just, too. I just hit a, but it's I think. A wall. But the conspiracy is that it's a shadow ban. But there's also a possibility that it's like it's favoring certain things like reels. Right. Yeah. It's, it seems to favor reels now more than everything else, which is like very odd. Do you want to know why? Why? So they are. Oh, they. Let me let me word this the carefully. Bad people, the evils, the dictators, <laughs> so the tur- rulers, the elites. <laughs> Who? This is. <laughs> They are um, conditioning the human mind to be f- uh, far more of a short attention span. So, like TikTok, as even an example, right. you are people can't even focus on anything that's longer than a minute or even ten seconds. They're scrolling through and they're not able. It is conditioning people to pay attention less. I don't think it's an accident. It, you could just look. It could be an easy way of making money, and that might be the most simple I think thing. It's is, an easy way of making money yeah. because here's the the counter to that. This podcast. Mm. Right. right. It's hours long. Hours. Yeah, but yeah. it's the most watched. Yes. Yeah. But it's hours long. And mm. a lot of people watch the whole fucking thing. Right. Or listen to the whole fucking thing. Like, it's a lot. I'm so ju- it's like the opposite of what we thought. We thought that people aren't interested in learning things. They're not interested in exploring new ideas. They're not interested in long-form conversations. They want things to be quick. Right. Like, that was when I first started doing it. People were going, you got to edit this. I was like, why? Like, it's too long. So don't listen. 
Mm-hmm. And like I was like, this is what I'm interested in. I'm just gonna do what I'm interested in, and it worked. But sure did. but it's the opposite of the narrative. The narrative is everything has to be ten seconds long, TikTok, keep going, yeah. and we're just turning people into zombies. Well, then that that goes back. That verifies what I'm saying or validates. So it's like true and false. If they're gonna pl- you know put something out in short, you know, it's not working. Right. I mean, it might be working in some capacity on some people, but or, um, what's this say? New report highlights the decline of Facebook and Instagram as TikTok becomes the new yep. home of entertainment. Oh, my God. So if you need to get yep. advertising. Meanwhile, it should be illegal. They should fucking ban it. And yeah, it's TikTok. like, it's total Chinese spyware. Yeah. And everyone is like, I'm on I don't even care. Look at my, go into my accounts and find out my passwords. Yeah, passwords, absolutely everything. everything. It's more than just your credit card number, people. It's literally every single thing in your phone. Every all website you search, all the text messages you make, it tracks all of the movements that you make with your thumb, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. There's it's a nuts. saying. Oh, but it's free. It's fun. It's lovely. There's it's a the saying. Best. Anything that's, if something's free, you are the product. You're the product. Right. right. Data. Your data is the product. Mm-hmm. But it's never been exploited like it is with TikTok. And, and so they also lied about where the data's going. Oh, it's only staying here in North America. Bullshit. Yeah. It's going straight to China. Right. It's crazy. And they're, they're also getting biometric data from people that have fingerprint readers on their phones or face, you know, like face recognition. It's like there's so much data it's getting. It's really spooky. It is spooky. And in this world that we live in, when they're controlling information, the one thing that freaks me out about talking about history is that they usually, they, as in people who are tyrants that, that, that suppress and censor people throughout history, they go after the teachers. Mm. They're on there. It's more than just artists. Yeah. They'll go after the comedians. They'll go after the yeah. teachers. and Because it's going to be complete control at a certain point where it's like, you do not get to teach. We were talking about this uh, last night at dinner about how, what's her face down there in New Zealand? Like anything. Just interrupt in. Would she say anyone other than the government giving you information is false? What was her? Oh, was the, the prime minister of New Zealand. Yeah, at some point. she's That just, lady's a creep. Just interrupt. Yeah, isn't she? Yeah. yeah, yeah. She really is. Tries to free. She's literally Orwellian in nature a bit. Yeah, and she was, you never would have thought that before COVID. No. There's it, so many of them, like Justin Trudeau. He was a sweet, oh my, handsome yep. fella. Yeah, Nobody charming. would have thought. Stripes got shown, I think. Oh, my God. On so many people. Gavin Newsom. So many oh, of these yeah. fucking people. Oh they seem benign. And then COVID came along and this opportunity to control people and a reason to do so. We're all in danger. And they oh. exaggerate that danger greatly and use it to clamp down on you and force you into these pharmaceutical drugs that you have to take and do this and do that. we got to lock it home and stay here and we're going to redistribute wealth and this and that. It's like, Mm -hmm. whoa, you guys are fucking demons. I didn't know you were demons. I thought you were just governors and and mayors and shit and shut down all the restaurants, even if it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we we I was even we were my wife and I were talking for a little bit about is it time to maybe move back to Australia at some point and then Fuck COVID hits it's like no fucking way. Where do you live now? Cal- Northern California. Yeah, get out of there too. I definitely am. That's it's the next nice Australia. <laughs> we're out in the sticks. It's a bunch of it's it's a bunch of you know, Northern got, uh, Northern California is wild. It's, yeah, it's like it's a very interesting place. It's all weed growers and cartel people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was I'm in Arizona. I thought <laughs> I was in Australia safe. still. Trust me. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm in Arizona. I thought I was safe. Um, I'm not getting into it, but what they did to Cary Lake, I, don't, I shouldn't go there. But there's Arizona was the last free place or one of them because, um, like, Texas is debatable. Florida is pretty free. Um, South Dakota is free. But Arizona, something – everyone needs to be paying attention to what happened there. Yeah, the, the the irregularities when it came to the the reports that people had at the places where they were trying to vote. 
It's really wild. Like I wish I knew what was true so I could actually comment on it. My what I witnessed uh, walking my dog in different neighborhoods was a lot of Cary Lake signs, and I didn't see one single one of Hobbs. Uh, and Katie Hobbs, like her social media on Instagram had like 6,000 followers, um, like literally on the election night compared to Carrie Lakes at like 300,000. And I'm like, you, th- that means something. It doesn't necessarily prove anything. But my point is that people I was talking to, she had a huge, huge, huge following. She was doing all the debates. Katie Hobbs hid. But I know what happened. I mean, I don't have proof. <laughs> what do you think happened? Are you allowed to say these things, right? These are the things that they go what like this you to you, think? Joe. If you go, you know what I mean? This is like one of those things where you, you they, they so go like this to you. you think there was some manipulation that led to someone else winning? Perhaps. You'd have to be stupid not to conclude that. If anyone that's looked into this, you would have, it's an insult, it's insulting my intelligence to think that something, let me just say it like this. I just have some questions. That's all. Well, all like, the people that were, was it Maricopa County? Is yes. Is that the, the area where they had the most irregularities were also the most Republicans? Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, Maricopa County has a lot of blue to it, too. But listen, so, Trump Lake won there. has provided no evidence to support her claims of election fraud. Well, this is on Newsweek.com, which is totally unbiased. <laughs> no what, evidence. What, that's, a, that's Even her legal is... case was thrown out by a Maricopa County judge in December. Lake has insisted that the election fraud was involved in Hobbs' declared victory and that she's the real governor. Mm. Yeah. Yes. But she was also saying that Donald Trump really won and he was the real gov- real president. Well, what she said— gets said almost me, every election. Let me quote Carrie Lake. Places. I studied Carrie Lake. Let me quote her because I'm a— I'm a, Are you a Carrie Lake supporter, bro? Yes. Um, I, I am a supporter of anyone that's an advocate for free speech, anti-censorship, and freedom and my rights. Uh, and what she said, a reporter asked her, was pressing her on the 2020 election involving Donald Trump, and she said it very eloquently. She said—she asked the reporter, I'm asking you— do you really think that Joe Biden got 81 million votes? And the reporter's like, do you think so? She's like, no, I'm just asking you. Do you think he did? She's like, I have questions and so do Arizonans. And that's all I'm saying. I just have some questions. I'm allowed to ask questions. I think a lot of people voted for Joe Biden. Would a lot of people vote again? I don't think so. And I think that's why they're looking into his fucking classified documents that he got in the backseat of his Corvette. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe the Democrats think that too. They're trying to sink that dude. <laughs> yeah, 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 it seems like I mean, yeah. I don't know jack shit about politics yeah. and I'm a little suspicious Me of, their, either. of their actions. I'm like, hmm. I can't even vote. So. Hey, I'm... <laughs> Yeah, good. I think, Atlantis, I think Atlantis is in the Sahara, Africa, so just <laughs> yeah. I don't know anything about Stick politics either. That. Yeah, and Elon yeah. Musk, let's excavate the uh, lost labyrinth of Egypt. Let's do well, that. Well, the problem, yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the problems with uh, elections always is that you can never say there's zero fraud because, like, no one thinks there's zero fraud. Like, no. like when you say, how much election fraud is there? There's, it's not zero. So what is the number? And how much of it is Republican election fraud? And how much of it is Democrat election fraud? I don't know. You know, I, I, re- I, re- I remember they had that documentary on HBO back when Bush was president. It was called Hacking Democracy. And it was all about the diebold voting systems. Yep. And that these voting systems have been manipulated to help the Republicans win. So there's always been this sort of, um, this. Th- there's always been this narrative that, you know, your your elections are not fair. And a lot of that is being reinforced by these troll sites, these uh, troll farms like in Macedonia, they have a bunch of them, and then Russia, and they've been doing that to try to undermine our faith in democracy forever. And so 
a lot of people they get their information from these websites and Facebook pages that aren't even based in America and they're purely designed to get us upset at yeah. the election process and undermine our faith in the system. Yeah. And you know, they found out that 20 out of the top 20 Facebook pages that 19 of the top 20 were all Russian troll farms. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why, all the Christian wow. sites. Nineteen of the top twenty Christian sites on Facebook were trolls, and it's like they're doing this to try to get people upset about things, and it right. undermines our faith in democracy, creates more chaos, and makes us more easily manipulated. Yeah. It's really bad, and I really wish that we understood. Look, if so many people thought that Joe Biden would be a great president, well, now you know. Now you know he's not, and now you know he's, he really was in mental decline. Yep. And, well, maybe you can make a better choice in 2024, and let's sort this out. Right. But as soon as he said, oh, I'm going to run again, they're like, the fuck you are. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I think this is the beginning of a bunch of things that will probably come totally. out about him. They flipped on him. And yeah, I, they'll the, turn on him. Yep. And then it. they'll they'll put someone else in his place and Newsom waiting in the wings. Yeah, like, yeah. Or, I mean he's problematic because yeah. even ca they fucking hate him in California. How are they I mean, how are they going to feel about him in Arizona? How are they yeah. going to feel about him? But it's also it's like how how much of it can be manipulated by the media? I mean, how much can people be manipulated by these headlines that you read while you're taking a shit? How much of it, you know, how much how much of these narratives can be shaped to get people to say, look, it's better than better him than Trump. Yeah. If it's Trump, we're going to have a nuclear war. If yeah, it's I'm, Trump, we're going to have a this. No, we're, we're going to have tweet. white supremacists. We're going to have a this and that. And mean tweets, Joe. That's this focus yeah. on what's really important. Back well, mean he can't even tweet anymore because right. he's got to deal with true social, it seems like. Yeah. Because they gave him his Twitter account back and he won't even use it. Yeah. I don't think him and uh, Musk are friends, I suspect. Well, I don't think it's that. I don't think he's allowed to. I think he has a deal. Really? If I had a yeah. guess, this okay. is pure speculation, but he has his own social media network yep. and it's very valuable, right? Mm. So the only way that truth social is valuable at all is if he's not using Twitter. I see. If he starts using Twitter, I mean, he has like 29 million Twitter followers or something crazy like that. If he starts using that, no one's going to pay attention to truth social. Right. Like, why would I go over there and watch a bunch of QAnon wackos like scream about like Pizzagate when, <laughs> when there's... Twitter. I could just go to Twitter and read what he has to say yeah. and see him, uh, you know, arguing with people. Right. Meanwhile, the Taliban's on Twitter and they just bought blue check marks. <laughs> so people are mad that Trump is back on Twitter. I mean, I saw people, I'm leaving Twitter. I'm like, do you oh. understand that the fucking Communist Party of China is on Twitter? Do you understand that the Taliban's on Twitter? Do you understand how many fucking people are on Twitter and you're mad that Trump's back? Hypocrites. Well, it's just like, when the guy's on Twitter and he says funny shit, people can attack him and they can go after him. That's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. It's supposed to be like he says something and then let someone from the left, let L Elizabeth Warren uh, go after him or let this person go after him. Let, let him duke it out. Don't fucking silence people. Right. Especially like this idea that it's dangerous to let him speak and communicate. What about you, motherfucker? Someone's going to say it's dangerous to have Eventually. you speak. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah, going to come down to it. Like they're going to keep pushing it further and further and further until like you're going to have a very narrow window window of communication a very narrow lane of your ability to express yourself and it's not going to accurately represent people and they're going to whisper things in pubs and whisper right. things in coffee shops and that's going to be the real truth yep and this is like i was saying a, a few moments ago which is that for decades throughout your life people we didn't have the censorship. People were allowed to say things. In worst case scenario, they got ridiculed and laughed at and life went on and everything was fine. The merry-go-round of life worked out just fine with everyone being able to say whatever they want to say. 
And now all of a sudden it's a problem. So they're conditioning the younger demographic to be like, you're right, this is this is dangerous misinformation. They're, the younger demographic, these Gen Zs, they don't they don't remember what I remember before, like the days before 9-11, being a senior in high school when that went down and just how everything has slowly started changing since. They don't understand that freedom of speech was always a thing. There wasn't censorship and everything was fine. And now they, they censor and now you see problems. Well, there's also the problem that social media, for the most part, is controlled by the left. It's almost entirely yep owned and controlled by tech companies who are very progressive and educated and primarily lean left. They and, used to be the other way for a long time. The tech, they, they blow with the wind a little bit in terms of political favor and Right, and, but there's never been, but, but tech they're, they're has always now. been different than yeah. social media. Yeah. Tech combined with social media, like that's, that yeah. form of tech is the distribution of information tech. It's not right. tech like- Old like, school tech. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so different. Devin Nunes, the former California congressman who left office to run Donald Trump's app True Social, has remained quiet as the platform continues to be plagued with issues. It's his app. Proof so yeah. It's his, Devin Nunes? No, no. Donald mm. Trump? Yeah. Yeah. Like he owned, like they, his company yeah. runs it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think they have scaling issues well, that's more well, than I'm, deal I'm, with it. Than, you no, know I'm I mean? sure like, someone paid for it. I'm sure he didn't buy it. Well, it's, I was looking up the CEO I'm, is I'm Devin sure Nunes, and Devin Nunes left to run Trump's like social media. Right, company, but do you basically. think he funded it? I'm sure there has to be some sort of a deal. I would just imagine. Oh, that's what I was digging into. Because I, I would imagine there's investors, right? Say if yeah. you're going to open up a, an app. Look, those apps don't do well. I mean, think about Gab and think about a lot of these other ones that they created, Getter. There's a lot of them yeah. they created. They just went away. The I mean, if you got a fucking figurehead as big as Donald Trump and he's banned from Twitter and you say, this is the only way to get the voice of the king mm -hmm. and you put it on True Social, people are going to invest in that. And if they're going to invest in that, they're going to be very hesitant. Uh, well, how do I know he's not going to go back to Twitter? Right. Well, well, he won't. He's not allowed to. I mean, that's <laughs> just me guessing. Yeah. I have no idea. I'm very to logical. Totally talking out of my ass. But I would imagine that he has some sort of a deal. Also, I would imagine that if that is his company, he would be wise enough to go, you know what? This is worth nothing if I go on to Twitter. Yeah. So if I'm going to sell this one day and make a big profit. These are the people that invested in oil. Yeah, so there you go. There you go. Look at all these people. 6.2 million. That guy invested 6.2 million. Oh my God, I want to sell you a bridge, buddy. Yes, yeah, it's a billion dollars. <laughs> Secured a reported $1 billion. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's worth $40. <laughs> That's hilarious. But the money remains inaccessible pending a successful public launch. In the interim, Trump's media venture has put together about $38 million in debt, according to the SEC file. That makes sense. And that money didn't come from Trump himself. So who provided it? See, that's what I'm saying. The money didn't come from Trump himself. See, I guessed... And I was correct. Yeah. <laughs> and so let's look at all these people. So look at all these folks. Carl Fluger. Hello, Carl. President of the Texas Oil Company. I bet he has a big hat and a fucking giant <laughs> belt buckle. And he put $10 million toward True Social. Wow, that's a lot of money, Carl. Mm -hmm. Patrick Wall, CR Empire Holdings, company that manages multiple gym brands. $6.2 million. Kenny Trout. Texas. Another Texas. Telecoms billionaire. Donated... To Trump before forked over forked over four million. Wow, These Jesus Christ! People are all rich. That guy, the, the next guy, only two hundred grand, yeah. and a hundred grand. So most of the people were like, "Yeah, they are rich, but still, 
That is not a wise use of money. <laughs> yeah. You know, they probably got their walk. Put, do you need to donate, honey? We need to get Trump back into also, office. Uh, if it said they got a billion dollars in funding, whatever that just listed wasn't even close. Yeah, not that wasn't close. even $50 million. Yeah. Well, the other people are probably hiding. Dead. The other people are probably hiding. Or maybe they got a lot of people that donated like a thousand. I don't you know? know. Yeah. Because they've got, <laughs> so the next one was like 200,000. But that's all maybe like, People have been public about it. I didn't yeah. see that GoFundMe link. This is so long. <laughs> GoFundMe link. <laughs> ah. Well, listen, gentlemen, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, I really appreciate both of you. Your YouTube page is fucking amazing. Please Thank tell you. people how to get to it. Thank you. Yes, it's unchartedx.com slash C slash UnchartedX. Um, UnchartedX on Uncharted YouTube. X. Go com. find it. You have yep. so many great videos. Thank you, Joe. Amazing content. And your ability to just fucking spit it out. Both of you guys. I'm so impressed. And Jimmy, thank you so much for coming back. And thank you for bringing Ben and uh, yours. Bright insight. It's, uh, it's you have so many fantastic yep. videos. I tweeted a couple of them today. Thank you, Joe. Let's do it yeah. again yeah. sometime. I'd we'll love, love to. to. It was a great time. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Appreciate you guys both. Bye, thank everybody. You